Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome yet again to The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast from Consequence of Sound. We are pleased as punch to have emerged on the other end of the stand, our feet broken, scuffed, and bloodied. Now it's time to kick up those feet as we discuss The Long Walk, the second novel King published under the name Richard Bachman. But before we hang up our sneakers, we just want to thank you for... All of your iTunes reviews, your Facebook messages, your Instagram likes, all that good stuff. We really appreciate it. We like to talk to you guys. We like to engage. Uh, If you haven't left us an iTunes review yet, please do it. Uh, We'll appreciate it. We'll read it. We'll probably take a a screenshot of it and send it to each other and make ourselves all feel good about ourselves. We do do that. Which is uh, something that we all need to do in in uh, in this time um, my name is Randall Colburn. I'm a senior writer at Consequence of Sound, and to my left is... Hello, I'm Justin Gerber. I'm also a senior writer at Consequence of Sound. Uh, I'm Dan Caffrey. I am also a senior writer at Consequence of Sound, and to my left is... Michael Rothman. I'm also a senior writer at Consequence of Sound. No, I'm just kidding. It's the editor-in-chief, so... That's <laughs> oh, big shot. The lamest, lamest thing I've ever said, or that's really the most prickish thing I've ever said, so... I apologize. Mm. Are you the are you the major and the rest of us are the long I am long the major. I'm the major that I, I appear first. You know, I, I get very excited when I see young men uh, ready oh. to give their bodies and their life for me. And you also wear those mirrored I, air aviator sunglasses. I do. I do. Actually, I get I, I actually got uh, the same glasses that the cop in uh, Psycho wears. So I was thinking about that. And, you know, uh, we'll talk about the casting later on. Yeah. But um, and you never... wait, you want to cast the guy from Psycho from like 50 years ago? No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm thinking about um, the remake. Wait, oh, uh, again, let's. Oh, yeah, well, let's... we are already off on a tangent. What minute is this? Two? Is this minute two? Is, is that William uh, H. Macy? No, he's Arbogast. Oh. Yeah, we'll, we'll get back to it later. Justin. Yes. <laughs> Tell us about The Long Walk. Well, thanks, Randall. Well, long, The Long Walk, um, King actually started writing this, if you guys want to get really jealous out there, when he was in high school. And um, this was back in, I think, 66. And in 1985, when he put the collection of his Bachman books together in the, in the essay called Why I Became, or Why I'm Bachman or something like that. Why I Was Bachman. Why I Was Bachman, that's the name of it, yeah. And he says, I submitted Walk to the Bennett... Random House first novel competition in the fall of 1967 and was promptly rejected with a form note. No comment of any kind. Hurt and depressed, sure that the book must really be terrible, I stuck into the fabled TRUNK, and he writes TRUNK in all caps, which all novelists, both published and aspiring, carry around. I never submitted it again until Elaine Geiger at New American Library asked if Dickie, as we called him, aka Richard Bachman, was going to follow up Rage. The long walk went in the trunk, but as Bob Dylan says in Tangled Up in Blue... It never escaped my mind. None of them has ever escaped my mind, not even the really bad ones. Do you think his agent was like, or not agent, but whoever whoever the woman was, do you think she said, uh, she calls Stephen King up and says, can Dickie come out to play? And that's, and that's just this, that's how he knows. And he goes, I got you. He can come out. And then, and then he just sends her the book. I feel like King could just be taking the most boring phrase, like, like, hi, how are you? And somehow be like, as Bob Dylan said, hi, how are you? <laughs> Um, 
And so, uh, yeah, so that's kind of the breakdown, um, a book that he wrote when he was much, much younger than all of us. And um, let's have a description of that book. Ah, yes. Don't you see? Don't you see how clear it all is? Not only can you see the future, you can... I can change it. You can change it exactly. Well, let's let's read from the synopsis. That's what we tend to do uh, with these uh, book episodes. It's been a long time, a very long time. Yeah, since we're we've like read almost two months. Season back into this. Oh my gosh. Um, well, according to my Signet paperback edition, not Anchor Bay, not Anchor Bay. Has Anchor Bay released uh, Long Walk? I don't know if they have. I, I can't. I, I can't doubt. Sure. I mean, if, I, no, I don't think they have. You know what Anchor Bay has released? The Stand. Completely and ha- and cut. Halloween. Uh, on, oh, on, on oh did, what, did I say Anchor Bay? Anchor is it Anchor Books or it's Anchor Books, right? I wonder if Anchor Books and Anchor Bay are the same thing. Right? They should. They both love they horror. Should. They do love horror. horror and hounds. ships. I'm going to read the synopsis. <laughs> My first girlfriend went to a high school <clears throat> called Anchor Bay, so you're bringing back a lot of memories. Oh, really? Did she uh, come with a collector's edition of uh, Halloween, the director's, uh, you know, the t- documentary and like a little keychain? And why do you think I dated her? Oh man, that's great. <laughs> Anchor Bay is. Probably responsible for the majority of my horror fandom from the 90s, I would say. Because they brought back pretty Evil much... Dead. Yeah. I mean, the old all these movies that you couldn't really find. Um, anyway, let's just go on. Uh, we got the uh, synopsis here. The tagline first. Only death can keep you from the finish line in the ultimate competition of the all-too-near future. The Long Walk. Every year, on the first day of May, 100 teenage boys meet for an event known throughout the country as the Long Walk. Among this year's chosen crop is 16-year-old Ray Garrity. He knows the rules. That warnings are issued if you fall under speed, stumble, sit down. That after three warnings, you get your ticket. And what happens then serves as a chilling reminder that there can only be one winner in the walk. The one that survives. There you go. Spooky. I'll read that book. That so actually lo- runs down the concept pretty well, I think. I think so, us. too. Yeah. A lot of these synopses are, you know, usually don't do is, things very much justice. Is it, um, and they have to stay what? Is it four miles an hour or faster? Yeah, four, four miles, miles an hour or faster. Which I was trying to actually calculate when I was walking. Um, I, I actually read this book while I was rocking. While, while I was rocking? <laughs> yeah, while I was rocking. <laughs> while I was walking, and I was trying to figure out what four miles an hour was. You know, I don't really have the speedometer thing on my, my wrist or, you know, whatever, but... I imagine that's got to be pretty fast. I mean, fast I, enough to kill you. I walked over here, and my house is about, I think, two miles from from the office, and it took me about forty minutes. So mm. that's only slightly, and I was walking pretty briskly. So that's only slightly faster than these guys would have to go for however days. many hundreds of miles Jesus. and days and and all that. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of the hook. Is we're we're dealing with this. I mean, kind of the real hook of all of this. What stands out is you know what's what's scary about this book is the idea that this is some you know not post-apocalyptic future, but a dystopian future. Yeah, it's funny because I feel like that word gets thrown around a lot, but I think right. that's the more accurate one because I think dystopian just means that. I could be wrong. Society is different in some way than we know it. Whereas post post-apocalyptic would be. Everything is broken down. The stand would be post-apocalyptic. Yeah, stoic yeah. would be more appropriate. Yeah. Well, you know, as Justin said, this was written back in 1966, 1967. So I, I, you know, you have to look at the climate that's around at that time. And you know, in 1966 is only two years after the Civil Rights Act that by Lyndon B. Johnson, and right in the middle of the Civil Rights Movement is King writing this book, mm-hmm. and 
that Vietnam. year, I mean, you have Vietnam that's you know going over overseas, going on overseas, and then you have the March Against Fear, which happened with uh, between the um, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the SNCC, and the Congress of Racial Equality, um, and that's when they actually fully embraced the slogan of like Black Power, and um, and which eventually led to like the Black Panther Party, and um, you get this feeling that I mean, the whole country was just exploding at, you know with with different culture with with different conflicts and I, I imagine king who was in high school at the time when he wrote this yeah he said he started as i think as a senior in high school, you know, in high school he, finished, he finished it as a freshman in college mm-hmm. so he's, you know he's going into college yeah. he's seeing the world changing before his eyes as his own world is changing um and i think this book once you get that context it changes how you look at this book i feel when i think too king has always been obsessed with the end of the 60s and going into the 70s, or even going further back to the end of the 50s and going into the turmoil of the 60s. Um, we talked about that a lot with The Man Who Loves Flowers. Hearts in Atlantis is hugely about yeah. that down the line. Um, and even though The Long Walk doesn't necessarily explicitly reference events that were going on at the time, I totally think you're right, that these that just the country being in the state of unrest probably informed his tone and his worldview. And well, just what do concept. we know about the dystopian world of The Long Walk? What's interesting is, you know, and King does a really good job of just, he's not obvious at all, especially from the onset about when and where this is taking place. You no. find it along the way. And I read this a couple of years ago, and I missed so much. Me too. And the second go around, especially, I guess, because, you know, we're taking more notes and we're a little more focused knowing we have to talk about it. Um, can we talk about a little bit about the where this book takes place? Yeah, was, like as, the environment. Because I know, Randall, you, I think you found some things I didn't find. Well, yeah, I just there's little there's little cues that um, in the book, little hints that show that the world that we're living in is, uh, you know, a step removed from the reality that we know in the America that we know. Uh, Just one little thing that I noticed is that Garrity mentions that there's 51 states at one point. Um, But Mike, you seem to have some um, insight into this. I remember. Well, it would appear that uh, there was some sort of energy crisis mm-hmm. that that happened, and they lost. <laughs> um, and it, it seems that the it became a police state because of it. Um, and yeah. um, we and it's funny because I actually didn't pick up on this, but I saw it just in some reason. You guys said you did notice it. Um, the idea is also that we lost World War II, and so that does make a little bit of sense because the long walk of the as a contest, although no one is forced to do it. Mm-mm. When you do enter it, I mean, it's very brutal. It's very efficient. It's ve- It has this half track, which, I mean, was a machine used in World War II quite a bit by the Germans. So there are these little hints of, oh, everything is a lot more regulated. Everything is a lot more um, authoritarian. And I and I totally agree with what you said. The, and it's funny because he, I think he actually struggles with this in later books. Um, but the distribution of information... Is so great in this. I mean, yeah, you, yeah. You, so subtle. You're kind Spread of out, you're yeah. finding out different stuff as we go along. Like I actually didn't know because it it start it does it start off at the main Canadian border and goes mm-hmm. south, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even even with that, even and I, and I love that he still sets it in Maine, even even in this you know different world because that just adds this local flavor to it. But even with that, he he um, doesn't reveal all the locations they're going to right away. It just it kind of unfolds so nicely. Well, there's this idea that the government is this not all watching state but that you really can't dissent against the government i mean like with it's a Garrity's, very big brother thing it is sure. yeah because like i mean garrity's father is a dissenter at one point and then he gets just taken away and he By has squads. no idea his squads and yeah, like, like the squatted gu- yeah squatted, squatted. and like the major is treated like a presidential figure he might even be the like it by all 
you know, intends and purposes the president, but they call yeah. him the major, and he is clearly a gruff, um, militaristic uh, tyrant. Yeah, because like Stebbins talks about how he, you know, spoiler alert, and this is going to be all just yeah, just so oh, you know, guys. Is, yeah, if you haven't read it, stop right now and <laughs> yeah. read it and come back to us because this is you know we're back to the, the normal book episodes at this well, point. I, I think that's interesting though with the major being seen as like a president of sorts mm-hmm. because he does talk about how he wants to live at the house of the major. Yeah, you know, and I I imagine that the military probably took over things. Mm-hmm. Something crumbled in the past this is what i love about it is that we don't really know for sure so there's a lot of speculation on our part which makes this such a stronger narrative for me because you know you're just as lost as almost as and there's also this sense of like even though the major is a tyrant you know when when all the 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 boys go up and meet him at the beginning they're all in awe like art baker i remember is like i just talked to the major you know and then later when they start rebelling during the walk um, Stebbins says to Garrity, I believe he goes, yeah, you'll join in on the little game where you're going to like make fun of the major. But if he came up to you, you'd still bow, you know, you'll, or you'll still cheer for him, you know, yeah. like you can rebel, but you'll still cheer for him. And that to me, uh, it just hits me so much about, um, the, evol- I think like, and you know, this entire book and we'll get deeper into this is a, for me is about, uh, teenage, like a t- teenage boys, uh, understanding the weight of death, yes. the weight of mortality, Absolutely. but also sort of coming into their own as thinkers and as uh, people who are developing relationships, because these are people who they have ideals, but they're not fully formed yet. And it's about sort of like, are you with um, like and like you said, I mean, there was a distrust of the government. But the question is, you know, if Lyndon Johnson came up to you and shook your hand, would you still shake it? Yeah, and I agree. I mean, this this book is absolutely more about the participants than it is about oh, what, you know, what, what kind of a society is this in? Blah blah blah. Because the information that you get really isn't doled out until the last three or four chapters. So I've got a couple things here, mm-hmm. Dan. I think you mentioned that earlier um, in chapter fourteen. There's a passing men- mention of the German air blitz of American East Coast near the end of World War II. Oh yeah. And oh, then, yeah, but there's that. something else that is mentioned near the end of the book in which they mention. A, uh, a current New Hampshire governor storming a nuclear, a German nuclear base in Santiago in 1953. So I think is maybe there was an invasion by Germany, but America ended up winning the war. Possibly, it's oh, kind of yeah, like you know, like the, the big the big blitz in the UK and everything else. But you know, ultimately Germany would lose the war. So again, but it's, it doesn't ultimately matter. That's no. the thing. But well, it's, it's a way to look at the world and how are we looking at it. And also, it's not because of the mention of John Travolta. Which isn't it just dropped in there near the end of the book? King's Dominion. You realize okay. King's Dominion. Oh, that's right. Little, <laughs> tea, little carry. Tea. How about that? But you realize, oh, this isn't necessarily a future. This is just an alternate reality of the present. You know? Yeah, and I, and I think like all the little details about the state of the world is just King's way of kind of making allusions to where, what his current state was at the time. I mean, if if if, if the I, the whole idea of this story seems to be just a, a long metaphor for the the conscription or like you know the draft you know like uh, mm-hmm. the vietnam draft mm-hmm. that was going on at the time where there's this belief that you know if you got your if your name was called like that's it you're 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 gone you're probably going to die and I that mean, that was an honor and there was an honor yes. though and and I, and I and i think that's that's an interesting you know obviously parallel but as randall said i think the the meat of this is the questions that they continue to ask themselves as they're going on the, on this walk. It almost seems like the walk itself is a metaphor for life where you go through these, 
you go through these these conflicts. You go, you see these people. You 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 have these interactions. You you start wondering how long am I going to do this? Like how like why am I doing this? And why it's am not, I doing this? Yeah, this and huge, like yeah. and the why and the why for each character is really interesting and still ties back to a lot of existential questions. Not so much like reasons like why they did this walk. It's almost just their id. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah, kind of interesting. It's funny too, because once they're, I like that you brought up the draft comparison because it's different. And once again, that they're not forced to do it, but I think the whole idea is the way their society is, makes them feel like they're makes, makes a certain type of young man feels like he, he does have to do this. And, um, I think it's McFreeze, I could be wrong, but uh, in the book, he someone says to all the other walkers, oh, don't you realize we're all doing this because we all want to die? Yeah. And I don't think that's something that any of them realize when they enter the walk. I think they do want to do it, or they tell themselves they want to do it for the, the fame and the fortune and the superficial reasons, um, and that's what society wants them to think. But of course, once you're on this this um, this uh, death march, pretty mm-hmm. much, I mean, I'm pretty much, like that's that's exactly what it is, you do start to ponder that in your head, and and also too, I, I'm curious to see if you if this is what you guys thought when I started the book, and I, it had been a, a long time since I read it. I I for some reason re- remembered it being there was a definite finish line, and that you just had to get to it, and whoever you know the first person was to get to it would win, and that a lot of people would die along the way. And I don't I don't think they make this clear right in the beginning of the book. I think you have to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Of course, there is no finish line. You just walk until everyone is dead except one person. So it's this it's this march of ninety-nine people walking themselves to death, and possibly a hundred people walking themselves to death because as we know, the winner doesn't isn't in a great physical or mental state. But so did you guys um I, I was I'm, if you didn't know that going into it, was there a point where you were like, "Oh shit, there's no finish line"? Was that like a big reveal? Well, well for me, even reading it the second time, there's a little confusion because there's a, there's some passages I can't remember who's having the discussion specifically, but they talk about how it's not fair and that there should still be a runner up. Mm-hmm. So I oh, feel yeah. like so maybe there is a finish line because also I think isn't it who somebody one of the guys sees talks about how he saw the end of a long walk once. Now I don't know if he was Stevens. waiting there like like waiting on the 18th hole waiting for them to finish it up. It was Stebbins, of course. It was Stebbins. He's got all the, the great information, but so I don't know if if there is maybe there's uh, somewhat of a finish. No, nah, I think there's I no think finish it just keeps line going yeah. until yeah. somebody until there's. Just I guess one for me, person. like the, the whole runner-up aspect was confusing. I, I understand what they meant. Well, that was I think that was just a theoretical conversation, and it was like oh, like I think it's McVreeze, and he says uh, if you know maybe there should be like the runner-up should just be allowed to live, and he goes because right oh. now I would just love to just be able to live, but then then the thing is like oh well, we did all this just so we could live. And I think, you know, that speaks to the idea of this whole walk. Like, it begins with the idea... Like, one of the things that I find so striking is several characters say this, but Garrity really states this, is that when he was getting... When he arrived, the I, the concept that he was moving towards death was a distant one. Yeah. Like, the idea that I am I could possibly die is not real yet. And it's not real for any of them. And then the as they keep walking... So much of, I think, the arc of this story is people realizing that they could die. Mm -hmm. And then it's that they, then the next realization is that they most likely will die. And then it's, uh, and then I remember, I think a line that really sums up the themes for me is I think uh, McFreeze says to um, Garrity at one point, he goes, You think just knowing about death will keep you from dying? And I think all of these things, like, speak to sort of the general mindset of people who were going off to war and also the question of why am I doing this? And then like Baker says, right before he dies, I go, he goes, well, I guess I did this because I, I, I figured it out. I just wanted to die. Well, it's, it's like that, uh, 
th- there's a great passage that Garrity has um, in his one of his inner, inner monologues <coughs> that uh, he basically realizes that yeah he is at stake also because mm-hmm. I think there's this assumption as a kid and rock and roll has captured this for years um, in, in themes and lyrics is that you don't think that it's going to be you that dies. Like there's, it, it's always like death is distant at death is, is not at your doorstep. Like this is your story. Like it, it's nobody else's. It's like you're in the, you're, it's your point of view. You're the and, main character. You know, you can't exactly. Die. And like he, there's a line, there's, I'm going to read this one section. It's on page 191. There's still the unshakable blind assurances that this organism, Ray Garrity could not die. The others could die. They were extras in the movie of his life, but not Ray Garrity star of the long-running hit film, The Ray Garrity Story. Maybe you would eventually come to understand the untruth of that emotionally as well as intellectually. Maybe that was the final depth of which Stebbins had spoken. It was a shivery, unwelcome thought. So yeah, it's this concept of, like, you're not immortal and you are not special. Like, Mm -hmm. you are, I mean, for him, especially since he's walking through his state and everyone sees, you know, he sees his signs, Garrity, Garrity, Garrity. I mean, he is like the celebrity of the group. So there is this... Because he's from Maine, right? Yeah, he's, the only, he's yeah. from Maine. So there, I, I would imagine that there is a some sort of, sort of ego on his part, where he is like, well, you know, I, yeah. he doesn't really, you know, it's very unconscious. But um, I, I, I could see how that's like that realization for me was just like, for as a kid, or like thinking about when I was a kid and having those feelings. Also, just knowing that, like, you know, oh, this this isn't a movie. This isn't some main story. I'm just some fucking nobody wandering around this world. Like that's just as open to all the violence and craziness and stakes and conflicts as anyone else. And, and I, and I think that's interesting. I mean, in a way this is a coming of age story, which is mm-hmm. kind of bizarre uh, when you really think about the, the matters at stake. Yeah. I had another reaction about that passage, Mike, and it's that we keeps referring to it as the Ray, the Ray Garrity show and everybody else is just the extra. I mean, the way the book is structured, he, it is the Ray Garrity show yeah. and everybody else is the extra. So then you start to doubt yourself. Well, just because we're following this person, does this mean that he's going to live at the very end? Yeah. Or is it going to take the spoiler alert? You know, Joe Pesci inner monologue in Casino, where you know he does not make it to the end. It just cuts it off. Yeah. You know. Um. And also, too, going back to the Vietnam thing, when you sign up for the, I love what you guys said about the celebrity aspect, because when you sign up for the draft, or if you got drafted or signed up to go to war, you're not thinking. Um, well, maybe some people are, but I think for the most part, people who sign up to go to war, they're not thinking, I'm going to go die for my country. They're thinking, I'm going to go fight for my country mm-hmm. and be proud and patriotic and receive the glory and all that. And then, yeah, I'm sure it is. I've never been to war. I don't think any of us have. <laughs> but, uh, you know, obviously when you get over there, wherever you're going, and you do start to see death, it becomes this real thing. I think because it's a walk and not a run, because if it, if it was a run, it would be this thing where, oh man, everyone's getting physically exhausted so quick. Um, you're starting to, to feel the physical elements of death encroach upon you because it's a walk. I love that because it takes so long for them to get to that point. You start to see it gradually. I mean, the first person doesn't even get killed for a long time. Um, and even when that happens, it's in the distance and they're still kind of thinking, Oh, well that's not me. That's this guy who couldn't hack it. And then, um, so I, I love the fact that it's a walk. It just adds this drudgery that is much more punishing to me than yeah. if it was something that was more physically rigorous. Well, that's why I think it's interesting that they're all like put, you know, drilled down to a number. You know, it's it's very similar to just how war is when you go. I mean, we've all seen Full Metal Jacket. You know, the beginning when they just shave everyone's heads, they and give everyone nicknames, nicknames, and you're just basically drilled down to the same person. Yeah, you're no longer yourself. I like that they the prize is sort of this um, in like it's a nebulous thing. Yeah. Uh, because I think that's how it is. You know, like what you said, Dan, the glory. Like I'm going to go earn the glory and I'm going to achieve 
the prize, like whatever that is, <laughs> we don't know. And then the prize becomes kind of, uh, you know, like it, it even becomes harder to describe as they go on. They're just, and then the, you know, all, and then, but then the people realize like, it's not even about the fame and fortune as they're dying. Like, you know, uh, scram is basically just like, can you take care of my wife? And then Baker's like, can you get me a coffin that's got lead lining in it? So rats don't eat me. Ugh. It's like, you know, they just, they're just like, God, I guess I just want to preserve myself in any way possible. Like that's the only prize I want. Do, do you guys think, um, and, and I, I didn't really draw a final conclusion about this, but a lot of them throughout the walk talk about rumors that, Oh, even the winner just gets taken out back and shot or yeah. that, or that that's they, what I wanted to mention too. And that's, yeah. and that's kind of said offhandedly and it's dismissed, but again, who knows? We don't know. And, and we maybe, don't know because maybe. of, of how, it's just society that we're in at well, this point it, it's it's also seems to be a commentary I, I don't even think he was setting out to do this but on ptsd in that yeah yeah you could survive this but it's you're never going to be the same you're fucked, and there's so. there's a line about that in the book uh where he talks about how he's oh let me find the line yeah but there's uh, also yeah. just the ending like the final line is about him breaking out into a run. Yeah. yeah which, which I is, love. Oh, can't to, like, I can't wait to get to that. Because it's that sense of like, I've been through this and now I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to run away from mm-hmm. what I experienced in it. Yeah. yeah like, he, this is uh, this is the line. It says, it was over. Even if he won, if he managed to outlast McFreeze and Stebbins and Baker, it was over. He was never going home again. And that's a cool, I mean, that's such a good line. And there's a lot of really good, simple lines in here. Mm-hmm. But that sums up the whole plight of the And that's the, the penultimate chapter. I mean, there's still yeah. more to go, but it's over. The yeah. story's really over at that point. You do, know? do you guys, um, not to like switch gears completely, but since we're, because we're covering themes in this part. Now yeah. Too, yeah. Right? yeah. Uh, um, this was not something that I, that uh, struck me at all when I was reading it. I mean, just as an overall theme, but then just reading a, a few, a few commentaries and synopses afterwards it wasn't brought up a ton, and it hasn't been verified by Stephen King. But I did find a couple, a couple places that, including even like Wikipedia, that talked about how a big, a big element of the book is this idea of repressed sexuality, um, especially yeah. with Garrity. Now, I, I guess the way I look at it, because throughout the book we hear things about, you know, Garrity was caught with a friend when he was like six years old or something, like playing with their privates. Yeah. Which, um, and, and then, then you know, later on they start to have these kind of surreal almost like lurid sexual thoughts about hand jobs and whatever else and that's also counterbalanced with him making out with a girl in the crowd like you know really with a lot of enthusiasm and it's it's kind of this clashing thing and so and you know he's on this walk with all these other men these young men and so i definitely i guess i'm i I guess my thing is like i don't know if king was necessarily trying to imply that garrity was gay and that this was like this whole gay metaphor but after hearing that, I was like, well, I guess maybe it is something about like, sexual confusion and sexual repression. Um, because his, his experiences, I mean, I feel, I feel like just because you, you and your friends show each other your penises when you're six doesn't mean you're gay, obviously. Um, like, I feel like that's a pretty normal thing for like little boys to do. And I think as a teenager, and we brought up this song before, um, like 16 Blue by their replacements, it's a lot about just like being sexually confused, period, when you're a teenager. So I, I was just curious, was, was that something that you guys picked up on throughout the book um or even if you didn't is that something like hearing that you're like oh yeah i could see how that's kind of a thing i mean the first time i read it again didn't pick up on it yeah i just didn't i didn't the second either, go yeah. around i mean i've got here in bold and underlined like a page <laughs> worth of garrity and sexuality and the thing what you said about you know when you're quote-unquote playing doctor as a mm-hmm. as a little child male or female with your members of your own sex it doesn't necessarily mean that you know you are homosexual. one way or the other it doesn't, yeah. doesn't mean anything really um but the fact that it still stays with him a decade later. 
Mm-hmm. And what ended up happening to his, his friend Jimmy, and what ended up happening to his friend Jimmy, and what seems to be related to that incident from years earlier, or from a year earlier, that's what makes me question um, uh, Garrity's um, confusion mm-hmm. or, uh, to a certain extent, repression. Mm-hmm. And then he, he also definitely has mother issues. Totally. Question. And, and a lot of that ties into sex, too. I don't know if that's an Oedipus thing or what. Yeah. So, again, it's not... It's like the book ends with them saying, oh, and Garrity, it, it's, it's all very vague. And mm-hmm. it's just another little nugget that King manages to add into the story of 100 people walking down a road. Yeah, and I, and, and I love that he doesn't come out and go, it's, even if he was writing about that really consciously, which maybe he was, maybe, maybe he wasn't. From what I could find, he hasn't commented on it one way or the other. I mean, it's not, and it's like I said, it's not even something that gets brought up a ton. It's just some stuff I found online. Um, But even if he was writing about consciously, I love that he made the choice just to kind of make this, make it this element of Garrity and this thing that gets explored. And you hear McVries call him out a little bit on it. Like, Oh, you know, give you a hand job, give you a hand job. And, and then, and then also too, that could be just be a, a moment of taunting, but it could also be, him, McVries, I think, is much more of a truth teller than Garrity is throughout the book. Um, and we'll talk about that when we get to characters. But, um, th- you know, that could be a moment of him also just like wanting Garrity to be his most honest self. And uh, yeah, and I, I love that we don't necessarily get a decision on that one way or the other. Yeah, I think that I think a lot of it has to do with the uh, the times, especially when King was writing it. I think sexuality was becoming a more fluid mm-hmm. thing and people were thinking about these things. But also these are young guys who have never experienced connection with fellow men this intensely. And I think that that is confusing for them. Um, and like but you said, Dan, that it's not a big thing in the book. But like last night we actually mentioned this and then I went home and I was reading it and <laughs> it is everywhere. Like is they yeah. talk about sexuality so much. And I haven't gone back and since finding that out, yeah. I haven't gone back and check and rechecked it. Well, so McVeigh's especially is. he's always talking about it and like he brings it up a lot. And then um, but what I find really fascinating is that uh, Garrity, the more despairing he gets, the greater legend he builds around his relationship with Jan mm-hmm. and he becomes a I, like the vibe that I get that I kind of love and I get this because this is a very teenage thing is the idea that um, he's only been dating this girl for a short period and they haven't had sex or anything but he like the, the longer he's out there and the more despairing he gets the greater he builds it and it's like she's his wife like as it keeps going on like he is so obsessed with her and he builds this narrative in his head of this beautiful relationship they have and and where it's going and what it's going to be and it it, it you know it feels like a very well this is what I should want sort of thing mm-hmm. so reminded me of summer camp in the yeah. sense that like mm-hmm. you have your real life and you go to this you know this world where you are yourself but you're not really yourself you're kind of a a recalibrated version of yourself, so to speak. And I I figured that, you know, you have all these guys here who are exchanging stories and Mm -hmm. some of them could be tall tales and could be realities. And I feel like the Jan story was very, like, you know, like bringing, um, (laughs) I want to admit this story. So when I went to summer (laughs) camp, uh, a long, long time ago as a kid, um, as a little, uh, chubby Mike Rothman, I brought a photo of my online girlfriend, uh, at the time, and I said, "Oh, this is my girl back at home," or you know, and and I and I did you say my these... my girl I like did. that? My yeah. girl was my girl. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was lame like that. You was know, it like, Jennifer Love Hewitt or something? It was yeah. It was like a, it was a cutout of like Party of Five. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a, it was like a photo from the Entertainment Weekly. They still have the article on the back of the photo. It's got a low definition photo printout. <laughs> no, no, I, I had actually been pen pals with someone for for a very long time, and we we you know we quote unquote called ourselves like 
internet, you know, online girlfriend, boyfriend or whatever. But it was this thing where I, you know, I went to this, this summer camp in like the middle of like upstate New York where all these cool kids from like, you know, Manhattan and um, Jersey and all these other guys had really cool backstories and these like big relationships. And I had this photo and I just brought it and, and then I just said, well, this is, you know, this is my girlfriend. And I, and then they just kept asking about different questions and, you know, just basic stuff that you would have because that's 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 your life then they're gonna ask you about your life and i just kept making all these tall tales and like and it got to the point where like i think three weeks later like i just people were already like well that's kind of weird why do you just have this one photo blah blah blah." and like i just was eventually just stopped talking about it and everything and when the jan stuff you know when you just mentioned that right now randall about how him embellishing you know gary embellishing these stories about jan it made me think about that because there are a lot of guys here that bring a lot of stories of you know experience and and I mean one of the one of the guys I mean, Scram's married, mm-hmm. um, and, and I think that there's a little bit of that there that you know fictionalizing yourself in the sense that he wants to kind of pump his chest, but also like you said there there needs to be some sort of meaning like why is he doing this yeah. and and I think that's a huge part of it and I think that he needs to figure out. I, I think that, that there's a, a sort of um, uh, adolescent rage that brought him to this because of what happened with the government and his father. Yeah. And he, you know, and I think there's a lot of subtle gestures to that. But I think as this goes on, you know, all of them need this sort of beacon to kind of keep watching and, and to keep going towards. And I think for him, it's Jan, just this little seed of truth that just like kind of he just expands upon it. And I, I don't know. I mean, that becomes his mission statement. Jan is his yeah. mission statement. Ultimately, like you said, Randall, at the beginning, the beginning, it's just kind of how Jan is just his girlfriend. She doesn't, even, you know, she's not even there to say goodbye to him. Right. It's just his mother that drops him off. And he's kind of resentful of her because, you know, they never slept together. And so it ends, I mean, listen, you know, you're a 16 year old boy. And if you think you're about to die and you never had the chance to have sex as a hormonal 16 year old boy, Couple that with again, you're on your you're on literal death march. That will also start to fuck with your head as well. And she does show up at the end, which she is at funny, the very end. And at he, that point, it's just been romanticized to a point where you think this is the greatest love story of all time. You but know? he doesn't even he just kind of goes past her, right? She no, 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 he no, does no. run up he, to her. It's an intense sequence. He almost it's, dies, and if it wasn't for McVries, he yeah. would be dead. And she that says, is, yeah. and she says, "I love you" to him. Yeah. Yeah. But but it's she a, but God, but he doesn't. Um, yeah, I mean, but he he McVries takes him away, and he just kind of like. He, oh no he no talks, he he wants to he wanted to stay. I thought he I thought there's go. a line about him seeing her kind of disappearing and like he's, he's oh because getting, as yeah. they're leaving he turns around I think he sees her scarf blowing yeah. as that's they right, walk that's away right, yeah. yeah oh that's and then he no, has we'll that guilt that. of like not looking at his mother which also plays into the edible yeah thing, so. the, the guilt of like yeah um yeah and I think and this will play into I think our next uh our next segment of the show but I I find it so striking that he wrote this when he was still a teenager because it's so much about. Uh, teenager sort of feelings and emotions and the heightened nature of it, but also the naivety of it all. And I think that um, that really manifests really beautifully in just the simplicity with which this book is written. And that lends itself to sort of the form and the structure that I feel like we're going to talk about uh, right here.
you know, a lot of Stephen King books, uh, you know, there is a certain, um, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a structural sort of gimmick to it. Mm -hmm. But here it's uh, pretty straightforward. We just get a series of chapters. We never venture from Garrity's perspective. We always say on it. And then the chapters each begin with a quote that is more often than not from a game show or something, Mm -hmm. which I think is a a part of a larger idea in the Bachman books that he was interested in sort of the idea that entertainment and, um, uh, government and uh, violence were all going to eventually merge, which is <laughs> that never happens. <laughs> I know it's so crazy. Like he yeah. and like you know everybody and I love the Hunger Games, but it's like it's so crazy because like he was you know even the, I bet I bet you know Suzanne Collins would cite Long Walk as an influence on the Hunger Games. You know, no, no it's interesting because I was reading online afterwards that how this book was this is apparently this huge influence on what we now know as modern YA literature. You know, Hunger Games, um, it, kind of the the teenage uh, dystopian sci-fi, whatever you want to call it. And it is, and I definitely see those connections just in terms of the scope and what the book is about. However, it's much, I, what I love about this, because I feel like if this were the Hunger Games, all the all the kids would somehow gather together, rebel against the soldiers, take over. I mean, maybe it wouldn't end well, but there would be some sort of more of an orchestrated Which rebellion. Which is what Kali Parker tried to do. And it doesn't yeah. work. And nobody did it and with I, him. And I love yeah. that. I love that it bucks that. I mean, not even because there wasn't the cliche to buck back then, but it. I love that the, where I think the current YA literature really departs from this is that, it. There, I mean, just the the sense of hopelessness and the fact that no, you can't stand up against these guys. They have fucking guns on them, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, you know, again, you look back, a lot of people when I would describe what this book is, um, they would say, oh, it sounds like the Hunger Games. It's not. Because the Hunger Games, these people are forced to do mm-hmm. the Hunger Games. And then your other YA literature, they are forced into these situations where they are born into these situations and that's the end. Whether it's manipulated or not, which, I mean, it is manipulation, it's their choice yeah. to do the walk. They're not being pulled out of their homes and being forced to do it. And they're not skilled. They're not like archers and they're not. They're just exactly. They're I, mean, just I think they have to take kids. a. Phys- they have to take some. Was it the mentals test? Yeah. Which is, you know, um, the question is, you know, like, why do you feel qualified to participate in a long walk? <laughs> yeah. Like a like an essay about. And these are the how, sorts uh, of things people did to get on game shows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, and I think that's why he begins those chapters with all those game show things to show that this, like, there is a certain sense of the stakes aren't. As established, uh, people don't people see this as a game and the you know, and then the consequences are death. (laughs) Well, it's interesting. I was thinking about these quotes that he keeps having before each chapter and how some of them are really dark. And I love the Chuck Barris one. That's the the one for chapter four, which he uh, he says uh, the ultimate game show would be one where the losing contestant was killed. And, and, you know, Mm -hmm. Chuck Barris is a. Famously portrayed by Sam Rockwell in Confessions of a Dangerous Good Mind. Good movie. Great mm-hmm. movie. And Absolutely. He actually died a CIA agent as well. And a CIA agent. He just agent. died a few weeks yeah. ago, right? Did, uh, maybe, well, maybe, maybe longer than it was that, a, right? I think it was like a couple of years or months so. ago or something. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, and, but, but I was wondering, is without the internet, how did King get all these quotes? He probably just had to, yeah. I Honestly, he probably just watched them and transcribed them. I do like that one of them is from Sesame Street. It's The Count. I thought that was yeah. really cool. Yeah. Um, oh. And, and at, at first I was like, oh, why didn't he keep them all game shows? But I kind of like that he threw that in there. Just this... And that's a later chapter. It's just when things are getting more absurd and more people are dying. I think the quote is just something like, well, does he say yeah, like, oh, they, why do they call me the count? Because I love to count. Yeah, you know? and it's, I love that. It, it's a chapter where a lot of people die. Um, yeah, I think he just probably watched them and transcribed them, right? I mean, I would imagine, but maybe not. 
I I guess I guess what I really respond to in terms of the way that this book is written, it's like, you know, he talked about in the intro how he wrote Running Man in three days and barely any edits were made uh, before it was published. Uh, Humble brag. But like, um, (laughs) but I would also had some uh, a little uh, aid for uh, a little uh, uh, a little uh, little fairy dust, a little of the the devil's dandruff. Let's just say he wasn't alone in the writing. But I'd say that like. When I read The Long Walk, that's the kind of book that it reminds me of the way people say Jack Kerouac wrote On the Road, um, that he wrote it all on one piece of paper over a couple days, which has been famously disproven. Um, Well, I mean, he wrote the final draft of it that way, but he had been writing it for years. But um, (laughs) like there is such a feverish quality to the way that this book is written that I wouldn't be surprised if King wrote it in a very short period of time, which he didn't. He wrote it over a couple years. And then, you know, obviously when it was being published, he revisited it and updated it and added and probably you know uh incorporated some of the things he's learned since then but there is such a feverish quality to the way because we we stay so tightly wound inside garrity's head and garrity is a really smart uh you know uh impulsive but also um level-headed teenager early in the book but then as his mind starts to snap so does the text in its own way like the sentences become longer and more disjointed the the punctuation becomes really erratic um his thoughts kind of veer all over the place and i love that but then like but then when he gets like a second wind or whatever the text will like even it out itself out. Mm -hmm. But then, so I, what I love about the text in this book is that it really seems to embody his, uh, Garrity's, uh, mind state at any given time in the book. Well, again, that's what happens when you focus on just one person essentially, and then his surroundings and the people around him is you think it's just a coincidence that when you think about it, when this book was published, he had already published five novels as Stephen King, but the only ones he published where the focus was just on one character, essentially, mm-hmm. um, was this book and Rage. Yeah. Do you think that's a, that was a specific Bachman trait, or is that just a coincidence? I, I think it's just the state of where he was when he originally yeah. initially wrote it. What I love, I, I feel like this was the perfect book for Young King to write. You know, uh, and I feel like he does. He he kind of takes advantage of. I am a young. Um, I'm you know I'm like a young. Uh, socially active young writer who is still learning his craft. So he writes a book that takes place in one character's head that is limited to a really specific setting that um, has a really specific high concept premise. It's all about teenage boys. He's not trying to write about (laughs) people who aren't him. And, um, and it's obsessed with violence, which I think is what a lot of teenage boys find themselves. And then it's also encountering the sort of things that teenage boys encounter. And that's what I really love about it is I feel like, like I think this book works so well because King was playing to as a young writer all of his strengths at that time, and uh, and he wasn't trying to overreach or create something that was too epic or too crazy. He really limited his focus with this book, and I think that's why it, it you know it works on so many levels. Do you guys think that? And I agree with all that. And and I mean I really do love this book. There were a few times though, uh, and I think this is maybe a result of the structure. But then again, maybe it does make sense that this would happen. Where, especially towards the end, the characters would get a little ex- expositional, oh, like especially McVree, like McVree's yeah. whole story about his girlfriend and all that. I like it as a motivating character trait, especially for a, a sexually frustrated sixteen-year-old boy. But it did start to get like a little much, and it was the only part where I started to not like McVree's as much because he he seemed like kind of a 
an ugly neckbeard a little bit to me without he was getting about well, it. Yeah, but well, that's how those that's how no, I know, I know, but it, I think it was just a lot of information thrown at me at once. And yeah, granted, they are walking and they have nothing else to do yeah. really. So they so of course they're going to be talking about that stuff. But just from a just from like a readability standpoint, there were a few moments where it did veer into that for me for a little bit. And then because he's so King is so good about dispensing the rest of the information about the world and and is very um he's very economical with that like he doesn't go over over uh board with the world itself i think when he did it with the characters it sometimes just stood out a little bit to me and um just just i don't want to say you can slog at all because it's an easily readable book but it just it just got a little bit harder to read for me when it got to those sections it's specifically towards the very end yes and yeah. it's when i think king realizes he has to actually answer some questions of what's going on in the world um, and I think because, you know, he does such a good job painting this subtly throughout the whole book, mm. but at the very end, there still is a lot of like, well, we have absolutely no idea <laughs> how these guys are yeah. here. Yeah. And so like, there is like, I'm in my notes for like on page 292 is like, man, King really doubles down on exposition here. <laughs> Would, yeah, I mean, well, like, at one point, like he's like, um, McFreeze says, sure. They draw the, the names out of that cock sucking big drum, big TV spectacular. And then Garrity's like, yeah, the major draws the 200 names, but the names, they're, they're, all, they're all announced. You don't know if you're a walker or just a backup. And it's just like, wait, <laughs> well, it's it's also like, like, who are they talking to? You know, yeah. And these guys, they already know that. Like, they don't oh, need absolutely. to. Yeah, it, it, it go, I, always, I always laugh at what, because I just reread The Shining, and I always laugh at what you said on that episode about exposition Watson. He's like, oh, there's this one woman, tips yeah. down her knees. Holy shit, I can't <laughs> believe. And it's just like they keep going, and you're just like, just, just cut it off after that first word. That's all yeah. you Yeah, my, my criticism of what you were talking about, especially with McVries, both of you were talking about with McVries, is I don't mind that reveal that oh he's not as good a guy as mm-hmm. we all think he is like you said who said he was a neckbeard that was a perfect uh, definition uh, uh, <laughs> me milady it's just the whole why won't you be with me you know I'm a nice guy I, and there's a whole bit where <laughs> they kind of cut them he kind of cuts himself off in the conversation but yeah. does he does he uh, it's again it's not clearly defined which I really love is that he kind of doesn't necessarily attack his ex-girlfriend but he kind of does mm-hmm. he grab her though does he attack her in that way does he grab her does because before, right before she slices yeah. his face, you know, like so, I don't mind that 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 um reveal, but it's yeah. it's like the the two pages worth exactly. of exactly. So I was, you know, I was you know I was with my yeah. girlfriend in my apartment. Yeah, and I was. Like, All right. There's also does this ever bug you about his books? And I, I know it's because we're we're getting oh, we, we've read a lot at this point. Yeah, we're getting the, into the nitty gritty. The with thing him. that really bothers me at this point is, and maybe it's because we just finished the stand also, and there's a lot of this is the foreshadowing always seems to come to fruition. It's like the Chekhov's gun. <laughs> yeah. He like treats it like that where, you know, if he lays the seed early on, it has to sprout. And there is so much like not so subtle foreshadowing in this book that for a while, like, like I liked it at first, but like, you know, when you hear Scram cough, you're like, oh, he's going to get a cold. And then three pages later, yes, he gets confirmed that he has a cold. Um, and there, there's just a lot of like gluttonous foreshadowing for me that I think really works like in later Stephen King books, but in this one, it was just so like, because it's so linear and, 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 yes. and, and then you have to follow this certain path. But there are certain instances where like, you know, scram coughs a, a certain way. And then Garrity's like, Oh, that sounds like pneumonia. And then literally the next page, it says, it's pneumonia. Like it's just well, there's the like that stuff started getting it just got annoying to me for a while because it was just like every instance it's just you, it's like watching a TV show and then a character does like some sort of t- turn or whatever and you're like oh that's kind of weird and then the next thing like <laughs> comes back to call back like forty five minutes later and you're like oh duh like it just 
usually there's like a finesse to it. it. I just didn't think it was as finessed in this book. I think you hit the nail on the head when you said it's because because it has the structure that we all love, this very self-contained, simplistic, linear structure. But because of that, we all know where this is headed. Like, if you say we're never going to see a character again, we know it's because they're going to get shot or get pneumonia. Yeah, you know, they're on yeah. this thing where they're already dead. Whereas in The Stand, where they, you know, when Dana Jurgens rides off to be a spy, they say, oh, and they never saw her again or whatever it is. Because the narrative is so sprawling and we don't quite know where it's going to go in terms of direction, it could be that she um, she ends up going to California at the end, yes. you know, and we and they don't see her. It could be because one of them is going to die and not the other way around. And there are just more options, I think. And because this has such a, um, it's it, like I said, so self contained. There are only so many options for these guys. They'll get shot. They'll get sick. Uh, <laughs> they'll rip their throat out. Um, <laughs> or, you know, which we'll talk about in the cemetery. But uh, so I th- I think that I think because we are stuck with the same group for a while when the flaws do come, even though they're, they're pretty forgivable and I still love this book. You just notice them a little bit more because you're in this bubble. Well, there is like some great uses of foreshadowing. Like I I think the most, most of the stuff that was scram, I think it's just because we just read this, the stand and anytime anybody sniffs or coughs, we're like red flags go up. So there's, there's that, but the pneumonia revelation, and then the fact that he ties it to his, the death of his younger brother, literally like another page or so down the road is just that it, it just seems so like easy mm-hmm. to do but there's a lot there's one passage that I did really like um that's early on and it involves curly and king writes curly began to force himself faster he was panting a little as much from fear as from his exertions garrity thought garrity lost all track of time he forgot everything but curly he watched him struggle realizing in a numb sort of way that this might be his struggle an hour from now or a day from now it was the most fascinating thing he had ever seen. It's like that stuff where it's like mm-hmm. more subtle and it's 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 not some it's more thematic than it is actual specific details is more interesting to me than than when you're obviously just gonna I, 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 like you're basically throwing out like teaser trailers. The guy who talks about pneumonia is gonna get pneumonia. It, it's yeah. like the equivalent of uh, you know in the Simpsons where they're it's a Rainier Wolfcastle movie and I think it's like a spoof of Lethal Weapon. They're you know they're sitting at the bar at the bar together or the diner, and the one cop's like, "Oh man, I'm retiring tomorrow. My wife's gonna make the biggest roast. My boy's gonna graduate <laughs> school, and, yeah. and he gets shot like right afterwards." You know, so yeah, it's like that kind of thing. There's some also there's some other like more shuttle shuttle more subtle <laughs> foreshadowing <laughs> shuttle foreshadowing. Um, I'm interested in all three of your takes on this. It's Stebbin says this to Garrity halfway through the book, so he's finally opening up after he's been quiet for a while, and he, he they talk about burrowing. And he says, "How far do you burrow?" Speaking of uh, Stub- Stebbins, did you wear a purple shirt today in honor of? Uh... I actually, I was telling Dan before we walked in today. Yeah, I'm wearing my, my breathable purple shirt because nice. I know how hot it was going to be today. Okay. It's 90 degrees here in Chicago. Yeah, if you, if you guys and plus us... I had a twenty thousand dollars on Stebbins winning. So you oh, know, well, you know, if you guys hear us, well, you came really close. If you I hear did. us breathing in here heavily, it's because we're all fucking baking in this this room that we record in, which we love, but you know it's what? very hot. But... As a matter of fact, let me cut myself off and let's go. Can we, can we talk about the hints? Did you guys write down the hints that were given through? the book like the, the hints, specific hints oh. about, what, about what i wrote down some of the hints wait do you mean like who like who is going to win or, oh, yeah because along the way though well, no, somebody like, said oh yeah don't forget hit number three is this or hit number four oh, is that. oh yeah, gotcha. no, i got, yeah. I got yeah. five i did not write them i got down, five though. of them so let's go over this yeah and we'll get back to my what i'm sure is gonna be a brilliant take on foreshadowing and <laughs> guaranteed uh hit number three do not repeat do not wear sneakers mm-hmm. was a hint see i'm wearing sneakers right now what are they wearing yeah that's what i feel like are they wearing like tight boots Whereas that Stebbins way, Stebbins is so wearing cons- moccasins. Yeah, 
But he takes is, them out though, like later on. Doesn't he, isn't he like carrying them and later that's on? That's later takes on. Them out. He puts them on. The so markers, what are most of them true. wear? Like because I would wear sneakers while you would think that's the case, right? Yeah. But you know, looking back on time. Human beings are not supposed to wear sneakers or feet are made in a way we're supposed to actually just walk with our feet. Yeah. But obviously, you can't do this without your feet literally being torn apart and bleeding and whatnot. So, Brandon mentions PF Flyers is the, are the shoes that he's wearing. And I don't really consider those sneakers per se. Yeah, it's the ones that Ewing is wearing that ruin his feet are the PF Flyers. Is, yeah. is King maybe referring to sneakers in a very specific sense? Like maybe tennis shoes are different than sneakers. Like ba- Maybe he means like basketball sneakers. Or I like Converse. Yeah, because Converse would be really bad if that you would be really bad for I think he, I think he was referring to Air Jordans actually. <laughs> That's right. He was so pr- he was so ahead of his time. Randall so and I time. know a guy, our friend Troy Martin. He um he walks around barefoot all like and not maybe not at work, but I think he's goes any opportunity foot. that he doesn't have to wear shoes or socks, he he takes. And I don't think his feet are. I mean, obviously in the winter or something you have to wear, but I don't think his feet are like fucked up. Really what is bad he? Uh, Steve Jobs? <laughs> no, he's like this. He what, no, what, it's he funny. He's a, no, 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 he's like I think his feet are like um. I, we should we should get Troy on here. Ask him. But I think they're they're good. Uh, we'll post some photos of his feet. Yeah, <laughs> Troy, if you're listening, I know Troy. Troy does. I think Wait. he likes some of our posts on Twitter. Maybe he does listen. Yeah. Have, you, have you invited this filthy hippie to your house? No, <laughs> Troy's he's Troy's great. He's not a filthy hippie at all. I mean, he's I just a, hung out of your house all night last night. I don't need Troy's nasty feet all over the place where I was. Yeah. All right, okay. Um, Troy. Speaking of Troy, hit number six. Uh, slow and easy does it. Sound advice, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Hit number 10, save your wind, a.k.a. Breath. Breath control. Stop talking. Yeah. That's an interesting point. Uh, they never shut up. <laughs> Do you think, let's talk about Stebbins for a second. Do you think he made it as far as he made it, not because of his physical attributes or lack thereof, I guess, really, but because half of the, the walk, he does not talk? Yeah. I, oh, I'd say so. I mean, yeah. I, I get, I mean I'm mean, i a fast talker, so I'll get winded If you're just focusing on in and out and walking one step at, at a time as opposed to just kind of being distracted and talking and really getting worked up I mean, these guys get worked up especially as mm-hmm. it goes along but so. wasn't he posturing the entire time though because at, at that one point when he when he admits that like oh I, I i i'm you know like when he actually does call him on his bluff because he starts think, noticing yeah but like, what i'm saying is you think i mean i think he would have quote unquote bought his ticket earlier had yeah. he not been quiet because i think on. he's so far yeah, yeah. yeah and that's so far down the line i think even with him doing well it's just like they're all fucked at that point you know right and they talk yeah. about it too it doesn't i think it's i can't remember if it's gary or McRees in their conversations talk about how it doesn't matter how fit you are at all ultimately it matters how long you can go it's the well, Taurus and the hair thing you know like it's scram yeah. scram is a perfect example you can't predict pneumonia He's you you could foreshadow pneumonia, but you can't predict it. Uh, hit number 12, wear athletic socks. Sound advice. Yeah. You don't wear dress socks for this, right? <laughs> You're wearing, wearing like, like t- gold-tipped, uh, gold-tipped um, black dress socks. You know, the, the, the socks thing reminded me of World War I because one of the most common things shipped and requested by the soldiers, at least those that were in trench warfare, were socks uh. because they, you know, obviously their boots are just stuck in mud the whole time because mm-hmm. they, that's how they got trench foot fast enough because the socks oh, would bleed through to get wet and then the soldiers would take them off and then just not have, you know, socks on at all. And then Ugh. they would, doesn't, uh, our old, allegory right there for the whole war. Our, our old socks. friend, uh, our old friend, uh, Stu Redmond, AKA Gary Sneese, AKA Lieutenant Dan in Forrest Gump says, keep your feet dry. OD green boy. And he throws them the, or he tells them to wear like this. this oh yeah, I love the sock. socks bit in Forrest Gump. Yeah, yeah that is too. I like in Saint Private Ryan where they use it to make sticky bombs. So, oh, uh, that's true. <laughs> and then that one guy tr- like tries to throw the sticky uh, bomb and it blows up. Oh, oh, that's awful. Good movie. Hey, you know what? Ten out of ten, Saint Private Ryan. How about that? Oh, I great. would agree. I would agree. Uh, hit number thirteen. This is the last one I actually have. Conserve energy whenever possible. 
So there you go. Yeah. Makes sense, right? I think those are good hints. Uh, the sneakers one, is even when I was reading it, I was really confused. Like I was, And I even looked at the picture because the I have the old the old uh, Bachman book edition, which has like the original covers on the inside. And they had the front cover of this book from like when it first came out is uh, the, I think it's at the end with um, with Abraham because there's a guy with his shirt off that's like, you know, keeled over. And then um, uh, Garrity is walking next to him. And it looks to me like Garrity's wearing sneakers. And, and, the, and that's, just, mm. that's just the illustration. So I, so I, I really want to know what Stephen King meant by sneakers. I feel like it, in my mind, I'm thinking like Converse. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, maybe, I feel like they would maybe call like what we all, like Adidas would probably be called tennis, tennis shoes or something like that. Because, so, you yeah. know, your Nikes and Adidas weren't honestly invented, I, don't quote me on this, I'm pretty sure the 60s. So I'm not sure how, po- how popular they were at this point. Yeah. Where, could, where those would be as mistaken shoes. as sneakers, yeah. exactly. Um, any more thoughts on form and structure? Oh, well, I wanted to, let's go way back to my Stebbins and Garrity bit. Um, so they talk about burrowing. So is this foreshadowing for Stebbins or Garrity? Because um, Stebbins says, you burrow until you hit bedrock. Then you burrow into the bedrock. And finally you get to the bottom and then you buy out. So he's talking about his mind. Yeah. And do you think, because like we talked about this. Well, he's a rabbit. Off, a off, rabbit off also. Mic. Yeah. And Stebbins just dies. Yeah. Like he, his body just shuts Gives down. Out. Now, do you think he began to burrow himself at that point? Or do you think that the, the way this book ends, Garrity's lost his mind. So do you think that, that Garrity burrowed so much into his own mind that now he, he didn't buy out by dying, but he's bought out of reality at that point. I gathered that Stebbins had been so within his mind that when he actually did unlock, because mm-hmm. he starts opening up a lot towards the end, yeah. that he started connecting again with his body, and his body's like, see ya. <laughs> see ya. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's, yeah, that, that's a good theory. Yeah. yeah, that was a question I had, but uh, that was a question for zeros and villains. Well, maybe we'll answer it. In a... so do we... Well, I, I did want to go over some passages that, because I usually do the great writing, you know, in uh-huh. this section. Yeah. And they're, they're you know, because I spend a lot of time bashing, not bashing per se, just pointing out things I didn't really like about the, the book in terms of the foreshadowing. But, you know, for this being a, a early, early, early era book for King, you know, the age of what, 16 or 17? Man, you know, that does, that does make me jealous. If not younger. Um, he was half our age when you were I mean, this. it's just, it's, it's baffling. I mean, there, there are some amazing passages in this book that I reread again and again and again. And, and this is just going to be some, something recurring with me on this podcast, I guess. I just love pulling out a lot of these passages. And, well, I've um, got some too. So should we, should we do that now or do you want to wait yeah, until later? Let's we might as well do it now, right? Because we yeah, usually put that in, the, in, this, in this section. Let's, so I just didn't let's wanna... close out structure, right, with some... Some good form narrative. narrative, narrative <laughs> I was trying to think of some kind of like... Not good cle- form talking, apparently, but let's hear some Some good, kind of clever form, writing. yeah. And we're going to make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here... You hear me typing. Whether you don't hear me typing, whether the fuck you hear me doing in here, when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. Now, do you think you can handle that? Yeah. Fine. Why don't you start right now and get the fuck out of here? Mike, what you got for us? Well, I have on page 72 of the uh, Signet novel, um, I have this great section where they pass... Uh, graveyard. Um, Ooh. Hey, over there, McFree said cheerfully. Garrity and the others looked to the left. They were passing a graveyard situated atop a small grassy knoll. A fieldstone wall surrounded it, and now the mist was creeping slowly around the leaning gravestones. An angel with a broken wing stared at them with empty eyes. 
a nut hatch perched atop a rust flaking flag holder left over from some patriotic holiday and looked them over perkily. Our first boneyard, McVree said. It's on your side. Ray, you lose all your points. Remember that game? You talk too goddamn much, Olsen said suddenly. Something I do like about that passage and just how they capture all these towns they're passing, because like I said before, King or Bachman or whatever you want to say, he does keep this largely in Maine, um, even though it's this dystopian thing. And I feel like with a lot of dystopian novels like 1984, um, The Handmaid's Tale, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of these books that I guess maybe are of a similar ilk, there's kind of a sterility to the surroundings. Everything's very cl- cold and clinical. Um I guess they really draw attention to the more otherworldly features of whatever world they're in. Whereas with this, even though we're in this kind of separate scenario from where we live in, it still feels like that, that kind of bucolic pastoral small town King coming out when we walk past these towns. And when he describes how, um, uh, what's the, what's the bit? Is it Portland they get to the, the big, they get to like a kind of a bigger city or something like Augusta that. Or, or maybe, maybe it's Augusta there. I, I love that. He's still, it's still this dystopian novel, but He's still describing it with that kind of that working class uh, nature that he has. Well, there is like gorgeous parts where you see that there are there is humanity still left in this world. Mm-hmm. And the one, the only one that I could actually see that actually that actually appeared to be like just classic American um, portraits was like on page one hundred three where they it says they passed under a short string of Mercury streetlights though through a closed and shuttered town, all of them subdued now, speaking in low murmurs. In front of the shop well near the far end of this wide place in the road, a young couple sat asleep on a sidewalk bench with their heads leaning together. A sign that could not be read dangled between them. The girl was very young. She looked no more than 14, and her boyfriend was wearing a sport shirt that had been washed too many times to ever look very sporty again. Their shadows in the street made a merge that the walkers passed quietly over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. Like, that is gorgeous. The, it all, but it's just peaceful. Like exactly. you didn't expect that, and that that sort of unexpectedness, and that throwback to a, a more simpler time, and and how I'm sure Garrity sees that, and is like, I passed, I I, I walked away from that to do this. It, it just speaks volumes. It it also um, and it's too long to read because it's like it's several pages. But it's all, it, they do have these moments of respite in the walk, and the one that really stands out is the the man when you give the walkers watermelon, the Italian guy. Oh, God, I love that scene. Yeah, and I, um, I mean, I wish I could read because it, it's really long. But he, you know, of course, what you think is going to happen because the the onlookers are not supposed to help out the walkers at all. You think what's going to happen is he gives them watermelon and he gets shot or taken or or um, you know just br- squatted. Yeah, exactly. And what happens is he get he they they sort of the soldiers try and restrain him and he throws the watermelon up and all the walkers catch it. I think like almost every walker in that group gets a piece of it and you keep yeah well they share it with each other yeah, yeah and yeah. it's and you keep waiting for something horrible to happen there and there are plenty of other times like with the dog where horrible things do happen yeah. but I love that that moment is it's just this really nice thing and it, it's kind of this them getting a second win halfway through the I walk. have a different interpretation of that though oh. because I think he's there because you know there's gonna be big crowds and he can sell all of his watermelon. He is, but I think that he did want to get the water. Like yeah, the water well, I see that, but I think it's an interesting. There's still a darkness there. Oh, where absolutely. He's there to make money ultimately. There's you know? still, there, there's still the idea of of, um, of him capitalizing the economy on this thing. And, yeah. But I think it, it. I think like it. We we end on this thing with the walkers feeling this sense of renewal in a way, and it's um, oh for the walkers, it's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah like I'd say it's more about the, it's more about the humanity in the walkers. It reminds me of that mm-hmm. scene in uh, Shawshank when they have the beers. Yes, yes. perfect. Absolutely. You know? yeah. and and then also uh, even like in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest when all the guys get to just be themselves 
um, for a little bit and not be, you know, the mental patients. Mm-hmm. So just like that, that reprieve yeah. of the situation at hand. It's, it's good to have it's that. It's important to not. Yeah. 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 What, what do you got, Justin? Oh, I have, I have, well, I have a couple, but I'll just, I'll just do this one I really loved a lot. It's, um, it's in chapter 14. Of which edition? Um, you know, it's funny. I read this <laughs> three different ways. I read this on through the Overdrive app on my computer, so the page count's different. I read some of it on my phone, which is a different page count, and I read it in the old Bachman Books edition. So I have like... <laughs> I, I, all I can tell you is this takes place in chapter 14. <laughs> um, and it's when he describes Augusta, and he goes forward and he describes the crowd as crowd, as yeah. a proper noun. It's like personifies this. And um, this bothered the hell out of me. He writes, um, The town itself had been swallowed, strangled, and buried. This is about Augusta. In a very real sense, there was no Augusta, and there were no more fat ladies or pretty girls or pompous men or wet crotched children waving puffy clouds of cotton candy. There was no bustling Italian man here to throw slices of watermelon. Only crowd, a creature with no body, no head, no mind. Crowd was nothing but a voice and an eye, and it was not surprising that crowd was both God and mammon. Garrity felt it. He knew the others were feeling it. It was like walking between giant electrical pylons feeling the tingles and shocks stand every hair on end, making the tongue jitter nuttily in the mouth, making the eyes seem to crackle and shoot off sparks as they rolled in their beds of moisture. Crowd was to be pleased. Crowd was to be worshipped and feared. Ultimately, crowd was to be made sacrifice unto. It's just, he's, he's you know, lost it at this when point. When you say that, like, he uses the God and Mammon thing a couple times in there, and I think that that's really a symbol of kind of the loss of um, idealization, like mm-hmm. the loss of innocence in the sense that the things that we posited as gods, the things that we posited as uh, unpeachable and beautiful are eventually perverted, you know? Yeah. And that this whole book to me is about that transition in the lives of these people. And speaking of people... <laughs> I, knew, I knew that's what you were going to do. I, uh, <laughs> I think that takes us to our next section, which is uh, what we like to call zeros and villains. I'm going to have to kill this fucking clown. Okay, uh, there's so many characters. Yeah, uh, why don't we all just kind of go around and say, and we can just discuss, I have a few specific questions related to character, but uh, why don't we all just kind of go around and talk about, you know, one or two characters that really stood out to us? Because um, I feel like we get to know so many interesting people yeah. on this walk, so... I've got about 85 notes on like 50 <laughs> yeah. people, but for me, initially it was McVries, yeah. who I still love as a character, but it's for me, it's Stebbins. And as I, once again, I'm representing Stebbins today with my purple Wait, shirt. Wait, he had purple pants. He did, right? but yeah. I, I didn't want to wear pants. It's too purple. hot out today. Yeah. So I'm wearing the color purple, obviously, represents my love and affection for the great Stebbins. Prince. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I love the characteristics of early on. He's quiet and he's just eating his jelly sandwiches, which sounds yeah. so disgusting. Thinking about like yeah. walking and eating jelly sandwiches in like in like hot weather. It reminded me, me of when I was in kindergarten once, and uh, once when I was in kindergarten <laughs> before you repeated it. Before I repeat, I did actually repeat kindergarten because uh, I was uh, too. I was there. I was too uh, I was too young to be in that one class. But I remember sitting outside in like the Florida heat. And there's there's this like girl that had uh, she was like unwrapping a sandwich. It was like ninety something degrees outside, and like she was eating like Cheetos, and <laughs> and and the, the sun was just pouring down on this picnic table. And she like undoes this like, this wax papered sandwich, and there's this jelly peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And it looks dry as hell, <laughs> and 
she's just eating it and like I just couldn't I it, it just made me so sick to know like how could you even eat anything right now like during this it's <laughs> disgusting right now I just so that's that, when, with the with the, the, the Stebbins jelly sandwiches that's like all I could think about well, was this girl just eating these and things. then they had they had those uh, tubes that they get every day too oh yeah and it's, and it's always like oh it's pork like pork, pork flavored pork yeah. flavored toothpaste or uh, it's disgusting yeah uh, anyway, yeah, but no, it is absolutely disgusting. Back to and Master Stebbins, Master, Master Stebbins. <laughs> Monsieur Monsieur <laughs> Stebbins. Um, I just love how he's also there, and usually, you know, it's like you said, Captain Exposition, or you know, but I, I love his exposition in this, and it, we learn later on why he knows so yeah. much, obviously. But the story he tells at the end of chapter four about witnessing the end of a long walk. Oh man, that's the best. Yeah. Is I, I don't read the whole thing, but can I read a little bit of yeah, this sure. here? Um. He talks about how there were only a couple people left in the long walk when he was a child and was watching it happen. And he talks about how one person fell to his knees and then the victor crawled over to the other boy and put his face in that big blonde kid's shirt. Then he started to say whatever it was he had to say, but we couldn't hear it. He was talking to the dead kid's shirt. He was telling the dead kid. Then the soldiers rushed out and told him he had won the prize and asked him how he wanted to start. He didn't say anything to them then. He was still talking to the dead kid. He was telling the dead kid something, but we couldn't hear it. And... It's just something so unrevealing about that that tells me all I need to know about the long walk itself, and that's a that's actually a great piece of foreshadowing. Exactly, I was just that's say. a great piece of foreshadowing I was because just say. you know we don't know what the circumstances are there. We happen to know what's going on in this long walk, but that's all. And I think that's just it's weird. And I do I do like that piece of exposition. Show. I do have an issue with Stebbins at the end, though. The whole that's my be, next thing. being the yeah we hear a lot you talk about. It, um, yeah, it's not so much the fact that it's revealed he's the, the major son necessarily. It's the way it's written. Mm-hmm. It's written very histrionic. Yeah. It's in italics, and it says, you know, how come I know so much about the long walk? I know about the long walk. I ought to. <laughs> the major is my father, Garrity. He's my father. Yeah. And it's like, why can't they just said the major is my father, and then end of the chapter or something? Exactly. Like that. It, it's very, it's very um, off character as well. And it, it does, know? it does get to what Mike said about. <laughs> I, I do. It reminds me of. <laughs> Soylent Green is made of people. It's people. Do you know the part at uh, in um, Fuck the Police when it's like <laughs> Fuck you, you and, like when everyone goes nuts like off the stand, yeah. and it yeah. just totally goes off course of the song. It reminded me of that. Just like this, like wait, what the hell's going on? This is like you know, this isn't the song anymore. <laughs> or it's like the it's like the older brother in Texas Chainsaw Massacre yeah. like yelling at. Um, What's the guy with the scar on his oh, face? Yeah. He's like, yeah. you little, I told yeah. you to get back there. It's <laughs> like, very, what the hell's going on with this? You read it like, we're almost done with the book. And yeah. You really did a good job with this character. And all of a sudden, <laughs> yeah. he's like, and the thing is, I like, don't, look at me. And I don't mind him getting emotional because it's like Mike said earlier. I, I hadn't thought of that, but I think that makes total sense of once, once Stebbins actually does connect his emotion and his soul and his mind with his physical breakdown, that's, that's when he fails. Yeah. But it, yeah, it's just the dialogue itself. Like, and yeah, all we need if he says the major is my father, we told we all of a sudden get why we already get that the major doesn't acknowledge any of them or didn't or acknowledge them in that way. So we are we can we can fill in the dots. But he says everything like, well, he has kids all over the United States. See, I mean, he doesn't say it like that. I mean, does, like, I mean yeah. it becomes that like we don't even need to know that. Yeah, I, I, it's fine if you're his son, yeah. and, and it's crazy that the major's son is in this, and he knows it's his son, and he allows him to do it. But and it sounds like I don't like the character all of a sudden. I still love the no, character. No, he's great. He's I great. love also yeah. in the beginning before we even hear from him, he's just kind of this. This one person of ninety nine that for some reason Garrity cannot stop thinking about. Yeah, Garrity's about. obsessed with him. And, and like, him. He's like, "What are you talking now?" Like he'll yeah. he'll hear somebody laugh and he'll turn around and yep. it wasn't Stebbins or was it? Who knows at this point? Yeah, do, do you, and guys you hear? Have, you know, he'll think that somebody bought it out and it, 
Nope, it's not Steppen. He, he's also it. wearing uh, he's wearing purple and he's also wearing a little bit of green and uh, those yep. are the supervillain colors too. If I was ah, from the, jo- from, uh, the Joker. <laughs> Joker. It you is legitimate. What, what I find what I found interesting about Stevens because I spent a lot of this thinking about the teenage ideal that we are above death in yeah. a way that mm-hmm. we're gonna live forever. And I think like with Stevens, he the what he was sort of riding on was. You know, even if the major doesn't realize it, like he, you know, in his mind, he feels like he has royal blood, Mm -hmm. you know, and Mm -hmm. he feels like he can't die. Like he's so cocky because he's like, I've got the major's blood in me. And it's I don't know. It just that really struck me as his cockiness was really born out of a sense of privilege, Mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. And um, and then I think he real part of I mean, I think him opening up about it in the end was him abandoning that cockiness. Um. Well, not abandoning it, but losing it and losing that sense, like realizing that he is on the same field as mm-hmm. the rest of these guys. And because like the the one thing I really struggle with in this book is is um, is and we'll talk about this later, too. But is the the simplicity of McVeigh's death and yeah. and the complete lack of build up to it. Or you, we can argue that or um, and then Stebbins's death, which I feel like comes out of nowhere. Yeah. And so, Mike, well, with, with Stebbins, it, he reminded me of Glenn Bateman. In a way that mm-hmm. you know, I, mm-hmm. I feel like um, King used him as like a vessel to function, you know, to funnel his own thoughts and, and theories and themes about the book, in the story and the narrative at hand. And, um, and it's like on page two thirty six, and Stebbin says, "It's amazing how the mind operates the body." He said at last, "It's amazing how it can take over and dictate to the body." Your average housewife may walk up to sixteen miles a day, from icebox to ironing board to clothesline. She's ready to put her feet <laughs> up Ray at Walston. the end of the day, Ray exactly. <laughs> but she's not exhausted. A door-to-door salesman might do twenty. Keep a high school kid in training for football walks twenty-five feet a day, twenty-five to twenty-eight a day. That's in one day, from getting up in the morning to going to bed at night. Stew. All of them get tired. But Mr. Redman, East Texas, none of them get exhausted. It's just, it's, it's okay, Mr. Henry. Yeah. It's just, it was very, I, for some reason, I, I, I imagine like Ray, uh, Ray Wilson in like purple bands, like walking around. <laughs> With it's all these so, it's boys. okay, Barkovich. Um, but it, it, it is very, it's that, I feel like, you know, King has those characters in every one of his books, yeah. you know, that, and, and you could find them in Salem's Lot, you could find them in The Shining. Um, oh, it's Matt, it's Matt know. in Salem's Lot, you know. And like, yeah. even in The Shining and, uh, and, it's and like, right, like Dick Heller in. Right it's now, Heller, even a uh, little sneak peek, we're in the dead zone right now too, even the way the doctors mm-hmm. get to, they describe everything to Johnny, it's like, you know, and those are some of the parts I struggle with sometimes. I like it with Stebbins because that, I do too. that plays yeah. into the whole mind body connection but sometimes in king novels like there's a part in the shining where it's uh where jack and wendy are laying up in bed and she keeps asking him about like you know psychic powers and like all these things and he's like well babe i think it's like this blah 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 and yeah, i'm like come strange. on yeah i think, like, I think if stebbins had wrapped his arm around garrity in the beginning and said don't worry stick with me i'll tell you all about the long walk you know <laughs> yeah. I, I got this thing figured out that would have been more annoying but the fact the way it was unveiled and you, I, I thought honestly from the beginning that he was just gonna be quiet the entire time. Yeah, and that I, was gonna be the haunting presence. I thought I actually thought for a little bit because he only talks to Garrity for a while. I, I thought maybe he, and I, I'm so glad it wasn't this. I thought that it was gonna be like, oh, he's a figment of his imagination or oh, something, God. which would have been horrible. Oh. Yeah. But, but his death does bother me. And well, I, and, and all I, he and says I feel is it was rushed. He like, screams, "Oh, Garrity!" Grabs his shirt and then just dies. It felt so I, perfunctory to me. I don't like, I, understand I it. Disagree. Yeah, because tell us. Please. I think it kind of goes back to that first story we hear Stebbins tell. In which the runner-up just throws his arms up in the air and dies. Yeah, I think it's just an instance of the human body can only go for so long, 
I mean, that's the whole point of the long walk. Everybody's going to die except for the last person. And you can, you can trick yourself into thinking it's going longer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I think earlier on... there was more of a trigger. Yeah. But I think I, even I that would have seemed, a li- for me, in terms of the narrative, it would have seemed too... Uh, I'm trying to think of the best wording for this. I like what Expected you... for it to be some big... Yeah. Like, if you had given um, McVries or Stebbins the, the, uh, the Olsen um, ending, which I love, but it would have seemed like, oh, here's the climax. Now these people are going to have the most no. craziest ways of going out. No, I didn't want a crazy death. I, I think the problem is that it happens literally like only a page or two after McVries. Yeah. And you don't really get the... I mean, you have these two characters that have been built up mm-hmm. together this entire time. And you really only get like a page or two pages at most of Garrity and Stebbins alone. And I think like, you know, he there when McFreeze dies, he talks about how there wasn't even enough tears for him to like cry, you know, for to, for his friend Pete. And I and it's gorgeous imagery, and I, I really love that. But then it just ends like like literally like only a few pages after that. And I and I feel like he did a disservice to himself not having at least just a chapter with Stebbins and Garrity together, mm-hmm. you know, and, and maybe somebody could argue that at that point, there's only two of them. So just one of them is going to give because mm-hmm. they're so close to being, done. which is kind of like the original story. And I, and I could see that. And, but I think again, there could have been some far, more finesse because I, I do think it's, it happens so suddenly and it's just weirdly orchestrated. I'll just say that. I like what you said, Justin. I feel like the key is in the third part is called the rabbit. Mm-hmm. And you were talking about the idea of burrowing into the mind. And that, and you just mentioned that the mind controls the body. Yeah. And what Stebbins seemed to have was the mental capacity to keep his body moving. Yeah. And it seems that maybe it was an opening up about the major being his dad and actually expressing some humanity and actually connecting on some kind of level with Garrity that that broke whatever mental hold that he had on his body and then it his body died. Well, like, because their reactions are not very confirmation. They don't really confirm his his uh, you know his confession. They kind of just go, yeah. oh, yeah. and maybe he's doubting it himself at that point. Yeah. It's like it seems that he's so confident and so cocky and so spare and there's no humanity to him whatsoever. And maybe that's why all those lines are italicized because he's being real well, for the first time. He loses his support, superiority at yeah, this point. Yeah. Know? And I think when he lets it out, and the whole reason he did the, the, the long walk initially was so he can go up to the major at the end and say, ha, hey, I'm your son and I did this. But then he realizes when it's too late that, oh, no, the major knows who he is. So he's got at that point, he's got nothing to really like win for I feel like at that point you know, yeah. which is a strange and I think to let all that out and it, it goes back way earlier when we talk about Harkness who we only talk about we only meet a couple times um, oh he was the one writing book. a book right? he was the one that was yeah. writing the book I, I felt he was kind of King's Conduit with the glasses and he was the writer he, but what I'm yeah. saying is when he dies it's said that the magic circle was broken mm-hmm. and like in terms of that little small group that they had well, so it, I feel like when you had like the rock of that of that group especially with McVries who was the one that seemed to kind of just have everybody's back at and a certain point. he's my point. favorite character. Yeah, he's great. Him. I love McFreeze. And so I felt like it was the domino effect when McFreeze fell. And then it was You mean just... Harkness? No, I'm saying later on. The oh, book. later on. Later on. Gotcha, then when yeah. McFreeze fell. And then I'm going to kind of jump all over the place because I guess the book kind of jumps all over the place too. But the, the, the penultimate chapter we talked about earlier where um, Garrity is basically checked out and he says, no matter what happens, it's over for me. And so when that domino falls, when that person falls, then the next person falls, and then it's over. That's, yeah. how, that's how I looked at those, those deaths, and they happened just one boom, 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 boom to me. That's how, that's how I viewed those, the final three. I, um, that was my take on it. Well, it's like in basketball. When you have one player 
that just kind of malfunctions, it really does start like carrying over to everyone else. Kawhi look, Leonard, look, yeah, right. For all you basketball, yeah, fans you, out there. he saved the basketball bullshit for people <laughs> tweets, boy. No, but it's a good comparison though because yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll go back briefly. Yeah, the Spurs against the Golden State Warriors were this very good team. Their their best player, Kawhi Leonard, they had a twenty five point lead. He went down, and that was it. It's just over, and they all knew it was over. So it's, like it's kind of that thing. I just Steve wish Bar- um, it's very true. And Steve Bartman, that was turning of the tide. I wish. Th- I just wish that Stebbins' name was Nubbins because uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, like it felt like a shortening of sweater Nubbins. Yes, like Stebbins. Stebbins. I went. I wonder if there's any point when like little horny sixteen year old Stephen King was typing this, where he like accidentally kept typing Ooh. Nubbins. He's like, "Oh God, get your mind out." There's of the another gutter, character Steve, called yeah. called Tubbins or something, <laughs> Tubbins. wasn't there? Wasn't I there? hope so. I, I think. I think, and I think there's one named Horgan, Dorgan, and, yeah. and Drogan. Barry also. Horgan, yeah. Horace Organ. You know, I um, we Ripple. cannot we cannot escape this thing. These names are awful. Gribble. Yeah, I mean, it's because yeah. sometimes King's names are awesome. Like like rearing Salem's lot. I'm like amazed at how great all these names sound on yeah. the tongue. Even I mean, from uh, Lawrence Crockett to um, Nolly uh, was Nolly Gardner. I think. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like um, even Kurt's Ben Barlow. Mears, they all yeah, they all yeah. they ben all sound Mears. great, you know. And the, but then every that, but then Dead Zone you have fucking John Smith. So it, yeah. who knows? But um, I like that you mentioned Harkness because he. I know he's not the biggest character in the book, but he, I think he's the one that haunts me the most. Um, not, and I don't even think we see his death. Right? No. They just hear about him. And, right. and yeah. They have that tease that reminds mm-hmm. me of a uh, that that Alien Covenant scene oh, with uh, we're with words the over ship. that. <laughs> well, like w- yeah. w- we maybe it was because I just had read it like mm-hmm. shortly after seeing it. But like remember that you know that scene that has like almost like the Alan Vega like a uh, suicide score. It's like dun 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 dun. Yeah, dun, yeah. Dun. When Hartness starts falling down mm-hmm. and he's he's basically on the verge of like being shot, but he doesn't. They, it's like a close call for Harkins and he just keeps falling and stumbling. The way that King writes that scene mm. is so like, like the, like, Oh, like that's right. Because like, you, the way he flashes and like, it's all, it's almost like I've never really seen this happen where it, like almost like, um, everything, everything went into slow-mo mm-hmm. like on, on the page and the way he's doing like the, tsh, 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 <laughs> and, like showing like different yeah, portraits of like the, 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 the different point of views of this or that. And then he succeeds, but I think because they did that, you don't really need to have Harkin's death after that. And they and like, they do that a few times because uh, Garrity has his own moment like that later on. He like he King is able to make the idea of these guys just falling down and getting up uh, repeatedly right. really scary. Um, and also too, what you said about the circle breaking, I love that because once again, Harkness we're introduced to him as this very friendly kind of uh, uh, cerebral. Yeah, exactly. I'm writing a book, and it and. In a way, it goes back to the idea of oh, he probably thinks that's what protects him. Like the guy who writes the book is the one who lives, right? That, I'm, well, I'm yeah, getting rich. Reads, I think is like, well, if you win, like, what does it matter? Yeah, and so it's and it, and it's and I think because of that, it goes back to that idea of naivety. And I I think, you know, of course, we're gonna see ourselves in certain characters, and because because we're all writers, like I, that's the character. I'm like, oh, I'd, I would probably do if I was if I did a long walk, which I'd be fucking losers. Yeah. I'm gonna win this thing. He's like, I'd be Stebbins. Going but, back yeah. to what Micah yeah. said, though, I mean. The panic is felt in this book in such mm-hmm. a way yeah. that, especially, you know, most of this was written when he was 1920. It's crazy. Anytime somebody falls, whether it's Garrity or anybody, like my heart starts to race. Yeah. I'm like, get up. And I, and I always put myself in the position of whoever it is that's fallen. When and to think about like the panic of your body is literally done, but you know that if you don't get some will in a couple minutes, if you hear that thir- after that third warning, Especially after the third warning, that's mm-hmm. when it gets really crazy. And, and then you see a flash of Apollo Creed, and then you yeah. <laughs> get back <laughs> up. Well, no, but especially because we know that ninety-nine of them have to die. And once again, if this was a more contemporary piece of young adult literature, 
maybe I would think that, oh, they're going to band together. But I actually never thought that once. Like, anytime, um, anytime, like, the, there's that, like you guys said, Kali Parker tries to stage this rebellion. He's too weak to even, I mean, he actually does get, he, he kills does, one guy. He kills one soldier, but he's too weak. And and I think also on that part, McVree, isn't it implied that the rest of them were maybe supposed to help him? Yeah. And then they, yeah. none of them did. And it's funny because every time someone tried to either walk off into the woods or stand up to a soldier or organize any kind of rebellion, I never for once thought that it was actually going to happen right. or well, even get close to happening. I oh, I always am like, no, we're going to see this till the end. And yeah, that's how it sorry, is. what's the name of the character again? Parker. Kali Parker. I, and I love another vagary that King has here is when Parker's dying, he keeps saying bastards over and over again. Yeah, and that's you don't, know, and you don't about, know if he's talking to the soldiers or if he's talking to the, the long walkers. You know, I think it was the long walkers. Yeah, I know, I know, yeah. but it's just, it's just very like, vague. It's and they like, and they never ugh. say like because because uh, Garrity asks McVries, he's like, "What? Why is he saying that?" McVries like, "Don't worry about it." And 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 you never get that moment yeah. where you never get McVries going. Well, we were supposed to help him, but we didn't. Like you're just kind of like, oh, maybe that's why he's mad. So yeah. I think King really missed out on just having a great scene where like Parker oh, gets on the you know the half track. He like punches the guy, <laughs> and then like one of the soldiers like gets his like you know belt stuck onto like the the thing and then another one turns around and like tries to kill parker and then he punches out that one and then you know <laughs> you think of it like, i think of peter at the end of dawn of the dead yeah like right? the for music kick city like hits <laughs> with the bundle <laughs> 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 oh that'd be great i get and, and then all the they you know they all the walkers take the half track and they're like they finally sit down and they're like and then mcfreeze turns over to garrity and it's just like Phew. My ass never felt as good as this, and then they like, and then you see, drive like, off. And then you like, see like a close up of the major's glass sunglasses, yeah. and, and like the t- the track going towards yeah. him, and then it's just like it's splash cuts of like. Da, 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 da. Oh, I I guarantee you, if if they if the wrong hands, uh, if if the long walk fell into the wrong hands, like for an, yeah, yeah, for an adaptation, that's what we Hollywood would get. It would be it would be, it would become about like it would become about them, uh, yeah, them rebelling at the end or some shit like that. And I love like, I love like that the, we never like yeah. Iggy Pop search and destroy starts yeah. coming like. <laughs> like uh, I'd uh, like yeah. to talk about a character who is almost a cartoon, but I really respond to him is Barkovich. Yeah, I like Barkovich. Uh, yeah. And like we were talking about this earlier and uh, was it you, Justin, who was saying that you felt like people were too mean to I, I thought that. Oh, yeah. That was you? Yeah. And, uh, and I guess like, and I, yeah, and the thing is Barkovich is an asshole and he was being a dick, but um, I guess one of what I responded to about everyone's hate of him was the idea that I think hate is part of a bonding process. There is a, like, you know, we bond in many ways, but mm-hmm. we also sometimes bond in our mutual distaste of a certain thing. And I think it's really easy to hate Barkovich and for everyone to hate him, I think is another point of bonding. I mean, McVries always talks about Barkovich. Well, like, he hates him. He calls him killer. Barkovich feels like Ted from rage to me where yeah. this kind of, Oh yeah. He's he kind a of lot a like dick. Ted from, from rage. He's a dick, but I don't feel it's all the hatred and this venom towards him is warranted, but it's the same reason. Like the exact breakdown that you just gave is why yeah. they hate Ted in rage. Yeah. Um, I mean, albeit it's a much, it's a weaker book. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I wasn't on the rage episode, but I gave it five stars. Uh, five Pennywise uh, reckless. Oh, is that so? Um, one star, by the one, one nose, by the way, one, one boy. Web, um, Pennywise the thing that, that I love what Kings, AKA Bachman does with, um, Barkovich though, is he, he's not as simple a character as you think he's going to be. Mm-hmm. Because, right. okay, here's the thing. They pick on him from the beginning. And even McFreeze is strangely aggressive towards him where he's not really aggressive towards anybody else. He constantly calls him killer throughout the, the book. So by the end, though, Barkovich is getting to the point where he is bragging about how he's going to outlive everybody. Dance on their graves. Dance on their graves. But did 
the other Lon Walkers create this character? Was he always going to be like that, or did they drive him to this point? Because at one point, I know um, uh, Garrity does say that Barkovich is crazy, but was he crazy from the onset, or did, it, or did this constant like mistrust and, he was and a, anger he push, was, him to, push him over the edge? I think he was like just a little dweeb, and yeah. he came up to them and was like, hey guys, I got a plan. I got a plan, you know? Yeah. And then like he, he did that thing where he like sat down for two minutes and then got his third warning. He was like, got a little rest in. That's part of my plan. And they're like, now you have three warnings and we just started. <laughs> like, yeah. you idiot. I mean, I, and I so think, I think that they were like, I think that he was easy to pick on, and then it turned up his defenses, and that he yeah. you know became really defensive, and then in a situation like that and especially a testosterone fueled situation like that and he's clearly the dweeb i think he was lashing do you think out. he was a dweeb though i mean i i always I, I, got. I almost got I that he was tough... more of like a i got that he was more i don't know there's this very specific type of guy and i've, I've known a few of them in my life like a jock but who is kind of he's like the dude on the football team who's maybe not quite as good as the other ones and is um that's literally the the type of guy. I was, uh, Randall and I were um, walking uh, to your house yesterday, yeah. and we were. I was painting that same type of yeah, person. like he's I like, like not the best player on the team. Yeah. He's not exactly. He's he kind of falls in with like the nerdy kids, but he's still like more into sports than you know than say yeah. those guys. It's I mean, like I, in between the two worlds, I guess a dweeb in the in the sense that like yeah, like I, he he probably is like the the one guy in this in the um, on the football team is probably disliked by the other players, but I get that he probably is still like physically kind of fit and that he he's almost not actually tough enough to live up to the bully mentality because bullies are rarely actually tough right yeah. i mean like and but i don't know i mean i mean i'm not saying like maybe maybe but he does have that kind of like <laughs> randall that's because you were that guy and i, I saw him guy. as somebody who was a little older yeah. and was just has always been an outcast but yes. was not a weakling yes. for me though I, I thought he was kind of a, that's a like, good way not like it, a yeah. like a muscle-bound jock i kind of saw him is is, it, is Buddy the character in Christine? The, no, the Buddy uh, Repperton? Archie. Not, not no the uh, the the high school Arnie? the jerk the, so, the bully. Uh, oh, the Buddy bull. Repperton. It's Buddy Repperton, right? Yeah. <laughs> Buddy. I kind of saw him in that vein, not necessarily mm-hmm. physically, but that type of an attitude. Yeah. Of just Which he fuck said, all of you. I'm what, I'm 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 I, I don't need you. And he that says that at thing. the end of the at, right before he dies, he when he he has his like moment of remorse. He's saying he's like you know yeah people don't like me like I'm really not a bad guy. I just I just trying to and I think that was I love that him, confession you know? that yeah. he gives to Garrity and yeah. I love I love even the, even at the end he's still going back and forth between like this venomous attitude mm-hmm. and then contrition. And yeah, then, I'm not that bad. Like, trust me, I'm not really that great. I'm not really bad that bad of a guy. Then like fuck you, I'm in the wind. But, very as, strange and, one, and unsettling and as, for me. Reading as far it. as if he was like crazier, I mean, he does contribute to the death of that one, rank. that one Walker. Yeah, rank pretty early. However, it does seem kind of funny for the other Walkers to get mad at him in this contest where ninety nine of them are meant to die. Anyway, and he knows you know? what to do. Yeah, exactly. The, the confession to me was Barkovich realizing that he's going to die, mm-hmm. and that he doesn't want to die as someone that. As beacon of hate, yeah. he doesn't want to die yeah. in the situation he's in. He wants some sort of like, not comeuppance, but just you know, some redemption, right? Redemption, yeah. I guess. Yeah, in, in the sense that like you know, if he's going to go under, <laughs> and he's going to leave this world as just this lonely outcast that he's always been. I, I actually really got sad about him. I did too. And, yeah, know, he's and, sympathetic. Yeah, and, and and what's really fucked up is that you know Stebbins really is the villain. In the sense that he's the quiet one, it's the one that you don't really. And he gets very vicious towards the end too. He does. You know? 
Stebbins you know. is a wild card. You know? <laughs> He's quite a card. <laughs> what, what about you, Mike? Who is your favorite? I, yeah. You know, it's funny when we were reading this book. Uh, I don't know if Justin and I just always hit the same like page, but yeah, I remember you mentioned this, I texted you my notes or I, like a photo, a photo. Oh, you go first. I'll tell you. Well, I, I just feel as you know, I love Peter McVries, and 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 I think a large part of that is because I just kept seeing River Phoenix. Um, as oh, him, yeah. because he reminds me so much of Chris Chambers, and apparently Justin had written that down also. Um, yeah, so it reading. reminds me a little bit of Chris Chambers from The Body. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was crazy. Yeah. Was well, like, it, it's, does it, Gordy remind you of Gordy a little bit? Because yeah. Gordy, Gordy is so. Um, well, he's not like Gordy, where he's just very. You know, he's not a self defeater like like uh, like Gordy was in in The Body. But there's a point where it, it's so similar to Chris in The Body, and Chris is like older brother relationship with Gordy that uh you know when when Jan when Gordy sees Jan and he just keeps walking towards her and the way that McVries like pulls him off and starts like kind of talking down to him it's not really talking down to him just like kind of coaching him in a way a way that um Chris does when when Gordy has his doubts about being a writer and, and how he needs to get out of his town and it it just seems like whereas everyone else has their own beacon in their own destiny and their own reason for being on the road. McFreeze to me feels like the reason he's there, he made, he makes Garrity's win his own mission. And like, for yeah. me, that was a really touching, huh. like a touching thing that I, that I got out of it because his backstory is not really that compelling in terms of, or doesn't really give any reason for why he's there. I think, I think his reason, well, I take that back. I think his backstory proves that he's still trying to find himself and he yes. wants his, yeah. his, some sort of redemption for himself. And I think when he sees Garrity in the beginning, he sees something about Garrity and, you know, their relationship that buds, he realizes that he's going, there's some sort of sacrifice that he's going to give towards him. Because even when Garrity wants to reciprocate, he doesn't care. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, McVries kind of doesn't really let him right no. when he wants to when he wants to reciprocate. He keeps acting like he's paying him back a favor, and yeah, I and yeah. I, I, I I lost it. When well, McVries kept like, saying no musketeers, like we're not friends. I think there is a moment though, like halfway through, where he realizes. I remember him saying this that he knows he's not going to win. Yeah, and I think that's when I love that idea that he kind of be, his mission became to help Garrity. But like early on though, I think that he he went on it not having a good reason for doing it, but then discovering that the reason he was doing it was forging these connections mm -hmm. with people that he didn't have in the real world. Cause he obviously wasn't a very good person yeah. in the real world. And I think that he finds a better version of himself on the road, which is something similar to even we talked about with the stand with, with uh, Larry Underwood and yeah. Lloyd and a lot of these characters that maybe weren't great in their former, more realistic life, but in these heightened scenarios, they're able to, yeah, find the best version of themselves, which I think is great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to what Randall, you were talking about earlier with McFreeze and how you felt like you felt reading it again or reading it that he was a homosexual. Yeah. Right? Or at least was, I mean, at least he, bi, who knows? it's the, he talks in a way that is very flamboyant. Um, and he's the one he's, he's always asking Garrity about Jan like, well, not always, but often he's always like kneeling Garrity about it. And he's also he he openly says a couple of times he's like, like, he you know, he's the one who says, like, you know, would you give me a hand job? Like, you know, I think. And then he goes, oh, Kali thinks we're queer for each other. And hey, maybe we are, you know. Yeah, so, I, I see that part of it. Absolutely. I think at that point, something's going on there. Yeah, but I think with the Jan thing, the way I read that was that was his way of trying to keep propping Gary up to keep going. So tell me more about Jim. Tell yeah. me more about this, There's that this line. woman. That's a, good, then, that's a good read, I mean, too. Moments before his death, he says, not moments before his death, but very close to the end, 
um, and this is where he really sounds like Chris Chambers, is uh, on my book, it's it's on page 331, uh, McVries is basically tugging at Garrity at that point, and Garrity's like, let me go, let me go. And McVries, and I just can totally see River Phoenix saying this, mm-hmm. is, man, you must really hate her. What do you want? To die knowing that they're both stinking with your blood? Is that what you want? For Christ's sake, come on. And yeah, it's like, exactly. it, it, it's at that point, that's when I knew that McFree's entire mission is getting. Yeah. Well, and, it, it's oh, similar sorry. to that. It's similar to that exchange. And of course, yeah, of course I'm thinking of the, you know, stand by me, the movie adaptation of the body. Um, it's, it's like that exchange where, um, Gordy talks about, uh, I think he's talking about taking shop class again with them next year. And, and, and rivers Phoenix is a river Phoenix, rivers river Phoenix is like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, no, no, you're, you're like, you're getting out of yeah. town. You're going to mm-hmm. go on to exactly. advanced classes, all this. Yeah. There was something I heard on the, postmortem podcast with Mick Garris and Brian Fuller was a guest mm-hmm. and they were talking about the series Hannibal that Fuller created and produced and wrote and they talked about how the relationship between Hannibal and Will Graham was ultimately not necessarily a sexual one mm-hmm. but it was a platonic love mm-hmm. and that's what I got from the relationship absolutely um, mm-hmm. between Garrity and McFreeze it was much more of a platonic than sexual again the hand job thing who knows but I still feel like overall it's much more of a platonic affection than it was anything else well, mm-hmm. well i think i think a couple things i mean yeah and I, th- I think with the hand job thing that's also pretty far into the race and i think they're teenage boys their hormones are running crazy and that's not to say either of them are are not gay it could they could be they could not be um but i think just sex is on their brain and they're like baking in the heat and they're just kind of like delirious in general i it, i like that you brought up the hannibal um Hannibal Will relationship. I, sorry, I know I keep bringing up Simpsons references because I'm rewatching the show right now. So, I mean, it is but, like 30 years of references, you know. I yeah, I it's it's interesting because I don't know. I think it sounds like we all had sort of maybe slightly different interpretations with like why he was asking about Jan or this or that. Because um, to me, the the way I looked at it was maybe not necessarily that um, McVries was like attracted to uh, to Garrity, um, and I do agree like that it was a platonic love. But I, I almost wondered in that if he was just. I think maybe he sensed early on that Garrity was either repressing something or, or even could be something as simple as his relationship with Jan wasn't as um, pure and amazing as, as he yeah. says it is. And I always got that it was like him, him trying to get Garrity to be his most honest self. Cause that's what was going to help him with it. And on the, on the Simpsons, it reminds me of um, uh, when Harvey Firestein guest stars as Carl, the guy who helps out Homer in the um, early on, and, and, and like yeah, they have a very, his his mission is to help Homer, um, and Carl does happen to be gay, and I love the way they present on that because he just kind of kisses Homer slightly at the end. It's not like mm-hmm. it's not like they were, you, you know, they they make out or something, but it's this thing of like love exists. I mean, to quote Wayne's World, like you know, like uh, I believe platonic love can't exist between <laughs> two, you know, <laughs> two men, two men or whatever. It, it's that kind of thing. But um, yeah, Mike, what are you gonna say about that? Well, to go to your point about how he's trying to you know, prop up, uh, Garrity. It, it's almost as if McFreeze is supposed to be the mirror for Garrity. Like, you mm-hmm. know, like the, not only just a guardian angel, but like someone that he's supposed to look up to and try to find his own self. Um, and this is also towards the end. This is like right after the realization it's right after the passage. I just read about him pulling away and it's like, what do you want? Like, you just really want her. You just really want to die in spider and blah, blah, blah. But he, Garrity's having one of his inner monologues. And he's just kind of like going over all the events that just happened. And, uh, he says, he doesn't say it's it's a the inner monologue. He goes, once all of this had looked simple, pretty funny, all right. He had talked to McFreeze, and McFreeze had told him the first time he had saved him out of pure reflex. Then in Freeport, it had been to prevent an ugliness in front of a pretty girl he would never know, just as he would know never know Scram's wife, heavy with child. 
Mm. Gary had felt a pang at the thought and sudden sorrow. He had not thought of Scram in such a long time. He thought McFreeze was quite grown up, really. He wondered why he hadn't managed to grow up any. Hmm. Yeah, no, that, that, yeah. Like, there's yeah. this maturity at play, which which is funny. Is once again, I think in the outside world, McVries probably doesn't come off like that to other people. I think this is him, you know, doing this to become the best. This person is like you're harkens back to what you're saying about you know your Lloyds and Larrys in the stand. It's again, this yeah, is just a second chance, and to a lot of these people, especially the further along they go. They know this is their last chance to be like a decent human being. But like Larry, he's not perfect. I mean, he's like, not always. No. That's what I'm saying. That's he's what's great. Perfect, which like, is great. He's because flawed. like McFreeze has that mental breakdown also, mm-hmm. um, which is great. I mean, because y- you have this guy that is pretty much the you know most knowledgeable person. Because De- at this point, Stebbins hasn't really been you know talked, so it's really been McFreeze that's been offering a lot of the the you know mm-hmm. nuggets of truth and. He has that great passage about how he talks about the mind and how the mind is really what's going to be the determining factor. Mm-hmm. It kind of really foreshadows what's ever, what, what else is going on. Um, but, you know, to so to see him falter and break down at that moment is very terrifying in the sense because it's like, well, if he's out, if he's out of his mind right now, then like they're they're all fucked. Yeah. Because <laughs> like, yeah. he's the only one that really has like a strict constitution of like what the hell is going on. Like, you know, you never really get the sense that he's terrified so much and i think garrity even mentions this like in his one of his monologues mm-hmm. he's just like well wait he's he's feeling the, mo- the emotions also like yeah. none of us are safe like, yeah dan was there any character that you wanted to touch on no i mean honestly I, the one i wanted to talk the two i wanted to talk about were uh, harkness and barkovich which we did um, yeah. i mean we i love scram too yeah scram yeah. Scram's Sc- fascinating. scram was one i was i was maybe gonna talk about he's um, probably the most purely likable that's character. and the thing he's too, so pragmatic the thing too is scram is that there's almost there's almost not a ton to discuss thematically with him. Well, not no, that's not true. There's not a ton to discuss in terms of his psyche because he is, yeah, he's pure. He's when he says, um, "Oh, I'm, you know, I'm married and I'm doing this for her," and blah blah blah. And even and when he realizes he's gonna die, there's no freak out really. He's just kind of like, "All right, this is gonna happen." Can the winner? And then they talk about the winner um, helping out his wife and kid. And I think that is that's what there is to him. You know, I don't yeah. think I don't think it, he's playing games necessarily i don't think he's manipulative i don't think he's got an alternate agenda i, I, think I he's, feel like yeah. we've all met a scram yeah. at some point of our lives that just has it together yeah and it's just outside forces that are gonna f- fuck up his plan and it's so sad you know? the way he dies like he him and the hopi i love, uh, I love that american it's like, oh, so that's gorgeous. such a good, a good together, i love yeah. that they're gorgeous. talking to each other in different languages yeah mm-hmm. just, don't they just they just sit, like down they sit down cross-legged yeah. it's like something out of twin peaks or something yeah. it is it's just <laughs> and I, lo- I think that well that just touches on a uh like a, a bigger theme i mean well not bigger theme but a bigger trend that, like the longer the walk goes on people stop kind of freaking out and screaming and yelling and they just sit down and just accept it. Like yeah. Scram does that. Baker does that. And then uh, McVries does that. And it's like so sad to me. And like, but I mean, yeah. in the same way though, that's how I'd want to go. Like rather than screaming and yelling. Well, and it's a, it's yeah. funny too, because I don't think the Hoppy Indians, I don't think you really meet a ton before that. No. They maybe mention them and no, they, they, they think they're gay. Yeah. They, they think they're gay. They mention that Scram, um, you know, chats with them every now and then. And I love the realization that, oh, I'm, I'm going to go with these two guys who are from the same part that I, parts that I'm from and we're going to die together. And that's, that, that's maybe, that's, that's maybe the most peaceful thing any of them can hope for at this point. And it ties back to that idea of even though someone will win the walk, it doesn't mean they win at life or whatever, yeah, because I I'd argue that, um, well, and we'll, we'll talk about, I think we should talk about the ending in the cemetery because I got some thoughts yeah, about that. But, absolutely. um, 
I would argue that Scram and the Hoppy Indians maybe end up in a better place than Garrity does, even though Garrity's Absolutely. the winner. Yeah. Because they die, at the end of the day, they get to die on their own terms, and they get to die knowing they did their best, and they get to be at peace with themselves. And I can't, you can't say the same for the people towards the end of the walk. And we don't mm-hmm. know the, that much about the brothers, but mm-hmm. I think Scram is the most ultimately the most authentic character. Totally, there's yeah. no manipulative bone in his body. I think he's just yeah. doing this for a purpose. And th- if he makes it, he makes it. If he doesn't make it, that's it. he's not going to try, I, to try to tear anybody down. He's not trying to beat anybody. He's just trying to win. And that's I, a big difference there. I think with, with, with um, like you said, I think we all do know a scram. And, and may, maybe not in the sense that they're doomed or whatever, but I, I do know a lot of guys I went to college with and, and high school with that are just... They're just good people. Like, um, mm-hmm. there's this guy Cameron White that I, I'm uh, I haven't seen him in a while, but he was we went to college with him, and he uh, is a really good actor, just a super nice guy. Like, just really has it together. He married his college sweetheart. They have three kids, and they're just like you can just tell he's a good dude, and like you can tell these are the things he values. I don't think he gets selfish about other things, and even sometimes I think um, with all of us, you know, most of the people we know are artists or or uh, writers or in some element of this like hustling kind of industry and i always I will think sometimes like everyone you know like we're all good people right but we all have these selfish moments of like wanting to get to this next like plane and like the have these dreams and these goals that maybe don't necessarily have to do with other people that have to do with like they're for us you know and i and i think when i see scram i'm reminded of guys i'm like man that guy's just like a good person like they're solid and they're with themselves and i, and I love that we have that kind of character in i feel it, like right? i saw a lot of myself in scram yeah <laughs> uh, actually, I actually, it's just a real you're guy. ranting about him but i i actually did see caffrey as scram oh like, no, no i did not, too i didn't want to I, it was hard for me yeah, to say like, it because it was every time i wanted to say something caffrey would say but it's too bad you know he dies at the end and like no matter what he does <laughs> i didn't want to be like that but no there's like authenticity you know, oh, Dan well, Caffrey, the, Loser Dan's pretty yeah, authentic. It's very nice authentic. Guys. Thank, thank you. Um, I saw you as Barkovich personally. <laughs> <laughs> I saw you as fuck. I saw you as the major. Well, that's a kind of compliment. I guess. Oh, you know, I, I, hey, I, I was a good transition. I'm, I'm, I'm Travins who uh, dies with oh, diarrhea. Like, oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. You're like, no, we gotta keep going. Like, I know. There's so much to talk. Oh, yeah. But, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Touching okay. the major. Yeah. Yeah. I just. I also want to really talk about the major, who's really only seen a little bit throughout, but kind of has this godlike presence that I found quite. Um, disturbing just um you never see what he's literally you never see his eyes because he's wearing those aviator reflective sunglasses he kind of just peer veers in and out throughout um you'll see him in his jeep every yeah once i in love while. the jeep like zooming yeah. zooming then, out and he's like standing up in the back of it or whatever it's like such a it's like such a um like a militaristic like um what's the word i'm looking for cocksure yeah just like it's such a macho gross mm-hmm. sort of thing but it reminds it, me of the colonel from boogie nights um oh <laughs> god just he, sitting there he, with like he kicked sweat. the colonel's ass no, oh, he no, no who he ass. is he's he's like negan from the walking dead oh, yeah. oh he probably is like Ooh, yeah, fuck it he fuck fuck <laughs> Shit. Shake your wire around my baseball bat. <laughs> the, the thing. I, what are you they, crying for, y'all? The, Let the, me tell you, kids, walking here with your shoes. Do you think Jeffrey Dean uh, Morgan, before he goes on sets, like I'm gonna make sure everybody knows I'm a bad guy? <laughs> Probably. Look, look, he'd to, play a good mixteamy. Mix to be fair, I think that because I, I think the I think the issues with Negan and, and the show, The Walking Dead, are, have <laughs> more to go. do with no, but I think they'd more do with the writing and the directing than Jeffrey Dean Morgan. I actually do think. I do think Jeffrey D. Morgan would like if they wrote the major in a film the way he's written here. I actually think Jeffrey D. Morgan would be really good. All joking aside, because yeah, I yeah. think what I love about the major is that he doesn't do the Negan thing. He he's not like all right, you little fucking pukes. Time to <laughs> but you know he's he's just he's there and he's usually pretty. He just he really only talks to them in the beginning. He's pretty friendly to them. 
he, you know, he's the guy who lets the other people do the dirty work for him. And I love that it would be so easy for him to eventually have some really fascistic speech or um, come down hard on them, but he never does. He's more of this like symbol for everything that's wrong with this yeah, world. I, and, well, I, and of course, he does do bad things, as we find out later. I, th- I think he probably does have kids everywhere. Well, and, I love you know. the description that Gary gives first, where he says, um, uh, he says, a great overhead airburst traced the major's face in fire, making Garrity think numbly of God. Yeah. <laughs> and he talks about how Garrity's father referred to him as the rarest and most dangerous monster any nation can produce, a society-supported sociopath. Uh, ring any bells? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I was trying to think, you know, speaking of Trump, when I, when I was thinking of uh, the major, I was trying to like, with the way that they're describing him as this person to really look up to, I was like, man, that is Trump. Like that, that is no, uh, you know, he's point, a great no. guy to really yeah. you know worship and kill myself for. Well, it's, it's <laughs> um, the thing is that Trump, like, I'm sure he does do bad things, but I mean, just like persona wise, he's just so likable, and um, I just really I love that he he's like the major in that we know he maybe does bad things, but he really has it together. Like when he talks, he seems really smart and, and likable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, you know, Trump is a guy that you know wakes up in the morning, he's like, I'm going to make this country great again, and then I'm going to focus on myself, and, and, and that's just you know <laughs> that's, that's okay. where we want to go. And I think, I mean, let's put it this way. He's, he's no scram. Yeah. The major's no scram. Well, speaking of scram, I think it's time to scram on out of this segment. <laughs> What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery... Welcome to the cemetery. Ah. Okay, sorry. Um, This is uh, our section where we like to discuss the scary parts, the parts that give us goosebumps, the parts (laughs) that keep us up at night, the bloody parts. Um, And while Long Walk isn't a traditional horror novel, there's plenty to be spooked by. I'd say disturbing, yeah. Disturbing, yeah. So let's get to the chase real quick. Who wants to cover the Olsen's death? Yeah. And who wants to cover Markovich's death? Because those for me, those to me were the two most disgusting um parts uh, of the Why don't we bring in George Romero to reenact the I, uh, entire Olsen death? Oh. because uh, it, it's it felt like something out of Walking Dead. Yeah. For sure. Or did Walking Dead feel like something out, out of the yeah, long that's walk? True. Or the day of the dead. Well, actually, like Walking Dead's so good that I would say that <laughs> it's it it, it it's its own thing. So I would say that the long walk ripped off of uh, the walking dead, actually. So. Oh, somehow in some yeah. way. <laughs> somehow. I, um, so, uh, Barkovich is the throat ripping Bar- out, right? Yeah, uh, let's, shall I mean, we, shall we it's, start off with the main uh, course or shall we, uh, let's, see, yes, do? let's get right to it. Cause I feel, I also feel like that's, I would say the most notorious scene from this book. Like, um, even before rereading it, you know, and I, the things I find online, I'd be like, Oh, the one part where the guy rips his own throat out. And, I mean, honestly, there's not much to say other than that. It's it's um, he describes it very clinically. Uh, he it's towards the end of the race. I mean, I don't know. Just the idea of of the bully character ripping his own fucking throat out is like, I, terrifying uh, to me. I don't I, know I, what to say. I've about got it. the old passage right yeah, here. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Here we go. Yeah. Um, Barkovich laughed out of the darkness, a high gobbling sound, thin and terrifying. Not yet, you horse. I ain't gone yet. Not yet. His voice kept climbing and climbing. It was like a fire whistle gone insane. And Barkovich's hands suddenly went up like startled doves taking flight, and Barkovich ripped out his own throat. My Jesus, Parson wailed and threw up all over himself. They fled from him, fled and scattered ahead and behind, and Barkovich went on screaming and gobbling and clawing and walking. His feral face turned up to the sky, his mouth a twisted curve of darkness. Do you know what I thought of when I read this? Kuja? 
Uh, the end of Cujo? The jaunt. Oh, the jaunt. Oh, yeah. yeah. Hey, uh, Black <laughs> Mirror episode. Of, in, ter- <laughs> great black- in terms of the, uh, the self-mutilation. And the- I would think to myself, like, they don't have knives on them, so you can't really, like, claw at your wrists that much. It would take too long, and you can't really get in the into your stomach but you could oh, if man. you really wanted to I'm thinking about, I'm it's, doing it right now it's soft if enough if you, you really could. wanted to tear your throat out well, it would be and ugh. think of it too it's probably from a surge of adrenaline and they've been walking for a long time and so the skin is like and I love that he he doesn't go oh Barkovich brought his hands to his throat he dug his nails into his Adam's apple he dug some more and he, he, just, he just goes he ripped his throat out and I, that that to me is just I mean, I, yeah, I don't, I don't even know what else to say about it. It's just it's so I like, unnerving. I like McFree's line about it, like uh, the page later, where he goes, McFree's looks straight ahead. I think, I wish I were insane. He said, thoughtfully. Yeah, yeah. Like, is he still coherent enough to to absorb what happened? Because um, we don't know how much Barkovich is truly feeling any of this at this point. He knows yeah. he's trying. He knows he's just ending it. But and also, McFree's wished that he died. Mm-hmm. So it's like, when, for him to say that is like. It's a real is he, record is, skip moment. I can't remember. Is Barkovich, um, he's shot at that point, or is, has he been shot? I can't remember. No, like is, is no. He, he's not wounded. He's not at shot all. at that okay, point. And yeah. then they they shoot him to finally put him out of his misery, or they they allude to it. Well, then, you, you know, it's interesting that they're early on. They allude to the fact, not allude. They show how remorseless the uh, the soldiers are by like. There's one person that like loses his legs from the um, the half track, the, the half yeah, track, and then they still by. act as they give him warnings instead Ugh. of just killing him. I love, I love the clinical nature. of Stebbins is operation. dead at the end, and they still count down and shoot yeah. him. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. so creepy. Ugh. Like that 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 horror that that the horror of like being with these robots, basically. That it doesn't matter what you say, what you do, any situation, you're fucked. I mean, it's literally it's down to the fact that you guys said earlier. It really is just a game. Let's go back to the sports analogy real quick. Yeah. So, for instance, if you are a baseball player and you are, it's, it looks like an obvious base hit, for instance. Like you hit it so hard it hits the wall, yeah. but you fall down your way to first base. doesn't mean that you're automatically going to be safe. Unless you get up mm-hmm. and walk over there to first base, they can come over there and tag you out. Yeah, it's no, just totally. rules of the game, you know, and that's just um, clinical. Uh, for, I lost my train of thought. Sorry, give me one second. Um yeah, someone else can go ahead. Oh yeah, you, anybody want to read the Olsen? Uh, I don't. I don't got the Olsen uh, one. I, I do have one of the earliest instances where you see the ramifications of what they're actually getting into, and it's when Garrity talks about how he went to one of the long walks when he was younger, mm-hmm. and and uh, it's on page twenty nine of the uh, Signet books. He says, "One boy had been screaming. That was his most vivid memory. Every time he put his foot down, he had screamed, I 'I can't! I can't!'" I can't, I can't, but he went on walking. They all did. And pretty soon the last of them had gone past LL Beans on US 1 and out of sight. That was a cool little reference mm. to LL Beans. Um, <laughs> Garrity had been mildly disappointed at not seeing anyone get a ticket. They had never gone to another long walk. Later that night, Garrity had heard his father shouting thickly at someone into the telephone, the way he did when he was being drunk or political, and his mother in the background, her conspiratorial whisper, begging him to stop, please stop before someone picked up the party line. So it's interesting, like that repetition there of just how that memory sticks with him. And there's just, there's something really subtly evil about that passage for me that was just, 
such a good like harbinger of like things to come. It's just like ah, oh, god. I, don't I love the fact that he sees it as a kid too. Yeah, it's even Some, worse. Something else that freaks me out. Um, this is. I mean, I think you. You're absolutely right. I mean, I think the the throat ripping out and then Olson's death, which we'll get to in a second, are the two obvious cemetery moments. Um, something that does freak me out a little bit uh, also is the. The lunacy that sets in later to all the Walker's logic. Um, the one that I keep thinking of, is, and we haven't we haven't talked about much as a character, but Abraham, who um, he he takes his shirt off inexplicably. Like I guess because it's hot, maybe. But mm-hmm. and when he does it, everyone's kind of like, "What are you doing? You know, that's not going to help you." And he and and even though Scram has already gotten pneumonia and died of it, Abraham or not died of it at that point, but Scram has gotten it, and Abraham knows that, and he. And he's still kind of talking like he's going to win the race, and he, he's talking about strategy and all that, but he took his shirt off, which is like the stupidest thing to do, and of course ends up killing him. And there are a lot of moment, little moments like that throughout did, the Did you see uh, Abraham as uh, The Walking Dead's Abraham? <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually saw him as... I um, Because I think on the... I think the uh, cover of the, the long walk, like isolated paperback that when it was written under Bachman's name, I think that is Abraham on the front. He, I think that's the moment they're capturing is when, um, Abraham gets killed. Cause there's a guy with his shirt off. Uh, he's just really gaunt. Um, I mean, I guess they're all gaunt by that point, but no, I, I kind of picture him a little bit like a young Abraham Lincoln with a shirt off. It's funny that, <laughs> that, that, that cover of the original Bachman yeah. edition reminds me of, um, the for your eyes only James Bond poster. Oh no, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And you see Roger, rest in peace, Roger Moore. Maybe it, is, maybe it is uh, supposed to be an allusion to that, but uh-huh. I, yeah. So Olsen basically is the jokester of the crew early on, but then... Quickly. <laughs> very quickly <laughs> yeah. just sort of descends into a kind of existential spiral. And, um, peop- and then, but then he lives like much longer than anyone expects he will. But he uh, he's clearly becoming unhinged from reality, mm-hmm. and it's kind of really punishing and anxiety-inducing to uh, watch kind of you know, wait for him to die. And um, uh, I think at one point Stebbins says that Olsen, like, is the only one who knows the truth or something like that. Like, you know, mm-hmm. and that's why he's so fucked up. And they say, like, his hair turned gray before he died. Oh, you know, he reminded right, yeah. me of, for all you George R.R. R. Martin fans out there, he reminded me of uh, Reek in the book. Yeah. Yeah. The description yeah. in the book of, that's like, kind of like the, and, uh, the how hair did he, falling. How did he die, Randall? Olsen. Yeah. Uh, yeah, here's the description. It's just that page right there if you want to. Oh, I love this. Yeah. yeah. I just, um, this is so freaky. Uh, so he's getting, he, and he, like, walks up to the soldiers, right? Mm-hmm. Like, he approaches them. And then they start shooting him and it says, the blue snakes of Olsen's intestines were slowly oh. slipping through his fingers. They dropped, like, link sausages against his oh. groin where they flapped obscenely. He stopped, bent over, as if to retrieve them. Retrieve them, Garrity thought, in a near ecstasy of wonder and horror, and threw up a huge glut of blood and bile. He began to walk again, bent over. His face was sweetly calm. And then, uh... He's just, these are just my notes. Yeah, yeah, and he's, like, getting shot, like, repeatedly and not dying. And this is what really freaked me out, was that he screams, I did it wrong, in all capitals, before he finally dies. Oh man, yeah, you know, because every single character who dies, once again, with the exception of Scram and the the two Hoppy Indians, every one of them descends into madness. I think, right? I mean, no, not every one of them. Or, I think a lot of them just pass out. Yeah, so well, like I guess the out of the main guys do. Oh, out of the main guys, I, I feel like they all the ones who get like these showcase deaths. I think the you brought up the jaunt, right? Was that that was, or was Justin. that Justin? Yeah, yeah. Um, then we'll get to that skeleton crew, but uh, the jaunt. Uh, there's a a lot of about characters going mad for a very specific reason. But yeah, it did remind me of that. This just get become this like feverish lunacy. I just, mm-hmm. ugh, it gets to me, man. 
one of the one of the one of the other sections that was a little early on, and it's funny I complained about foreshadowing earlier, but I feel like some of the other foreshadowing that's again more thematic and uh, spiritual is so much more effective. Is when King really starts wrestling with the idea that these are kids who are about to face the the the, the concept of death and mortality, and and it started my mind going down a path of just what that feeling would be and the what questions you would have and and what are some things that would be going through your head and I think a lot of those especially I know you Randall um, with your upbringing and and all is you really do start probably you would probably start wondering about the afterlife and Absolutely. and and think where you're gonna go and and what are those consequences and 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 how like you know, when you're young, when you hear about young deaths, it's usually so surprised and sudden, and they probably had no time to reflect on the mm-hmm, idea that mm-hmm. they're going to die. So they don't really have to come with those conclusions or anything. But these people are, when they start realizing they're locked in this box of death and the only escape is death, they really start coming up with some awesome, chewy analysis of like their own life and their spirit and where it's going. And one section that's really early on, and it's on. It's on page 64. It's not that early, but it's between Baker and Garrity. And they're basically talking about the the concept of, of, of what you can and cannot have from the soldiers and how they think it's interesting that you can have a canteen at any moment, but you can only eat food at a certain time. And Baker goes, it may be a matter of life and death, but it sure isn't hurting your appetite any. Can't, can't afford to let it, Garrity answered i don't like the idea of feigning about two o'clock tomorrow morning basically saying if he's you know not you know of hunger now there was a general now there was a genuinely unpleasant thought you wouldn't know anything probably wouldn't feel anything you just wake up in eternity makes you think doesn't it baker said softly gary looked at him in the fading daylight baker's face was soft and young and beautiful yeah i've been thinking about a whole hell of a lot of things lately and mm-hmm. that that yeah. whole thing of just like yeah, like you wouldn't know. That's I mean, all of maybe that's better, but at the same time, where do you go? And and I know for me, like just going, you know, from a Jewish family and going into Catholic school and learning about hell and what the afterlife could be was terrifying for me as a kid when I started realizing what that what that might lead to and what consequences in life or what things you do in life, what consequences they might have. But, you know, there was never that lingering death over me of like, oh, yeah, I might I'm going to probably die at the end of this. But they do have that. And and for me, that the way that these kids kind of chew on this is terrifying to me because it's just you have no escape. You can't just knock out of it. You can't you can only just keep trekking on. And the odds are you're not going to be able to make it. Yeah. You have to figure out out how you're going to die and then. You have to also come at peace with where you're going to go. I mean, the thing is, this isn't, this isn't some like foot race. No. It's just, okay, you're starting now. Walk. You know, there's no race and then you get winded and you look around and you start panicking. It's just a short race or not short walk or a small, I'm sorry, a, uh, a, a long slow walk, walk <laughs> which is a long walk. And yeah. then you can do the whole Stebbins thing of being quiet and, mm-hmm. and, and following all the hints and doing one foot in front of the other and not talking. And mm-hmm. keeping to yourself, but eventually you can only be with yourself for so long before you start looking around you and you think to yourself, "Okay, here, here's what's going to happen here: either literally everybody I'm looking at here is going to be gunned down or die before my eyes, and I'm going to live, or only one of these people is going to live, and everybody else, including myself, is going to die." And there you go. How do you? 
how how does the mind accept well, that? There's no peace either of mind. fate. Either fate. Yeah. Either way, it's it, it's an awful scenario that you're never. Li- but you even start with. thinking about what's what is a peace of mind? Like what yeah, is the that's point what of it? Like you know, like why would I pl- you know pacify my own thoughts? What's the point of that? Even yeah. it's just like what's the point of everything? It's just you have so much. They have, these kids have nothing but time to think about their existence and a, a, a much you know. A crummy writer would ignore all of that mm-hmm. and just focus on the tangibles and like oh, the, the military, the getting shot, exactly. And, all, all and, stuff, and the fact yeah. that it, this this book takes such a detour into those things, it's like what Randall was saying before. It becomes so much. It's something so much bigger than what this actual you know genre present you know premise is. Well, and um, that tie, that goes to the thing I really want to talk about in the cemetery, which is the ending. Um, you know, at the very end, uh, as as it's set up, Garrity wins. Um, but what happens is he, at the end, he he doesn't register that the race is over. He sees something, and he right. sees he sees this uh, dark figure standing at the end. And it's not clear whether it's the major, maybe a uh, hint, hint, a character from another Stephen King book, um, yeah. or um, you know, we you don't really know what it is. And he just starts running. And what what Randall said before about. It could mean a lot of things. I mean, maybe it's him just running away from this experience. May I actually did view it as kind of a means of maybe hopeful escape, but or maybe he's just completely fucking nuts, and he's that's just the rest of his life. He's gonna he's the rabbit now. You know, yeah. he's just gonna keep running. So, what are you guys? What, well, what are you guys' thoughts on the well, ending? Let me yeah. read it because yeah. I actually yeah, think yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Uh, behind him, they finished by shooting the already dead Stebbins, and now there was only him alone on the road, walking toward where the major's jeep had stopped diagonally across the white line, and the major was getting out, coming to him, his face kind and unreadable behind the mirror sunglasses. Garrity, Garrity stepped aside. He was not alone. The dark figure was back, up ahead, not far, beckoning. He knew that figure. If he could get a little closer, he could make out the features. Which one hadn't he walked down? Was it Barkovich? Kali Parker? Percy, what's his name? Who was it? Garrity, the crowd screamed deliriously. Was it Scram? Gribble? Davidson? A hand on his shoulder, Garrity shook it off impatiently. The dark figure beckoned, beckoned in the rain, beckoned for him to come and walk, to come and play the game, and it was time to get started. There was still so far to walk. Eyes blind, supplicating hands held out before him as if for alms, Garrity walked towards the dark figure, and when the hand touched his shoulder again, he somehow found the strength to run. Well, it kind of goes back into a thought (sighs) that he has around Baker's death, where he... there. They basically say this on page 363. He goes, For a chilling moment, Garrity wondered if maybe they were all there still, walking ghosts that Baker could now see in his moment of extremis. Like, mm. if the if all these people are just confined to this eternity. What, I, yeah, yeah, I, don't, I don't know, because part of me... Um, I mean, and there's, the, there's like, the obvious thing. Like, the, I mean, mechanically, yes, Gar- Garrity thinks the race isn't over and this is someone else to beat. Yeah. But obviously, the... I think the figure is supposed to be someone else. And I love that King doesn't confirm it either way. Um, you know, I know Randall Flagg is someone that comes to mind, but I mean, and that's uh, what is in the King's dominion section. Of yeah. the notes. <laughs> well, and it's, yeah. and it's like, but it's funny because to me though, that's almost this like easy out, you know, yeah. I'm like, I don't know if it's just this villain. But I'm like, what is like, I, I guess, I guess my bigger question is, or the thing that the, the question that this, um, this very abstract ending poses to me is what does this mean for Garrity in his future, you know, or, or, or since he's running away from presumably the major, whoever's reaching for him, are they going to gun him down when he just starts running? Like, I, I don't know. Like what, what do you guys think this like means for him just as a guy? Is he gone? I is think he's he, totally yeah. lost his mind. I he think it also that. brings up 
part three is called The Rabbit. And I know you said earlier, Randall, that Steppens is the rabbit, right? At that point. That's what he says. Yeah. But I feel maybe at the end, it's scary. It's, it's the rabbit and he's going to keep running. It's like, you know, the rabbit being hunted and you avoid it. You hear that shoulder. He feels that shoulder on his, I'm sorry, he feels a hand on his shoulder and he just, that gives him the strength maybe, to just, to run and to like, to survive somehow. I maybe this, maybe this is why I, because I, I, I still do read it as a little bit hopeful maybe. And um, so King references Watership Down a lot in The Stand mm-hmm. and, and in other books too. And um, I'm probably paraphrasing, but one of my favorite passages from Watership Down, and it's in reference to the main rabbit, um, is uh, uh, Prince with a Thousand, I mean, sorry, Prince with a thousand enemies, um, they will catch you, uh, and you will run, but first they have to catch you or something like that. So it's essentially saying like, you had these skills now, you, you, you've conquered this thing. Maybe he's broken out of whatever it is, but I don't know. Cause they could easily gun him down, but I, I don't know. I, I guess yeah, I, I view it as like slightly hopeful. I don't know. Though. I don't think he's in danger of being gunned down. I just think he's totally lost his mind at this point. He's broken yeah. down. He's well, burrowed so far within himself. He's gone. That's, that's how I read it. Yeah. I don't think. I think the major is there, like congratulate. I'm like, hey, where are you going? We're gonna congratulate you. Hey, idiot. Gonna, hey, <laughs> hey, jerk. Where are you going? We're gonna give you everything you wanted. That's why you did this, right? Like, they don't get it. They yeah, obviously I think, don't I think, see it. I think it's also the bewilderment that it's over. Yeah. I mean, I don't think any of them really think they're gonna win. I think there's no. a doubt that everyone has that just like, well, I can't possibly win. There's a hundred of us. This seems to never end. There's no ending. Yeah. You know, you don't know until there's the willpower. I mean, the willpower willpower of everyone else is is out of your hands. So it's this idea that like your own fate is out of your hands because of that. And so like when you get to the end and it's all over, it's it's like this shock of. I mean, I'm trying to think of. It's like in um, races sometimes when when I think people just collapse at the end because it's just they're so like like wound up and like tightly wound up that it's just like this shock that they can't believe you know it's like when when um and we watch the olympics and they turn around and some of them go like oh my god i can't believe i actually won you know it's it's because you're you don't you're not even thinking about the end game and then when it does happen you kind of have to just go oh okay this yeah. is where i'm at and I, I think with this just this ensuing thing where he's just looking all he's been doing is looking at the horizon so like why wouldn't he stop you mm-hmm. know yeah i just keep thinking i was thinking what you said earlier mike about ptsd as well and i think it's you know, there is the haunting sense that I think that's what I pull from the ending is that just like when people came back from war, it's like the war wasn't over for them. And, um, you know, you're still going to see the shadows of the things that you went through. It's and, like the ending of the Hurt Locker. Yeah. And I think it's just like, I think that's how I read it is that he's become unhinged to a certain degree and that this, what he sees in the distance are, you know, it's the, it's that the walk is never over and this is going to be with him. And it's, you know. Yeah, I mean, because I, yeah. I see this book very much, especially just looking at the time when it was written as very much a uh, story about boys going to war. Oh, absolutely. With, so, oh, sorry, go ahead, Justin. Here's the thing. This is what kind of confused me a little bit about whether or not there's a finish line. Is the white line that's being discussed here, is that like the out-of-bounds marker or is that the finish line? I think it was maybe the line in the road, right? Like the, See, that's, that the was lanes. what's confused me the two times I've read. Yeah. I, I figured, and, the, and the fact that the major was there in my mind, I figured like that was the end of the road. The major was there to congratulate one of them. And that the white line gotcha. is the finish line, but it also makes sense if the white line is just the out of, one of the mm-hmm. Alabama's markers to the left or to the right, and the major happens to be there at that moment. And I would see what's it's would, about to end. I would imagine that once it's down to two people, they just follow with yeah. the major, and that makes sense. It's, it's going to happen at any moment. Yeah, no, yeah. totally. Well, I um, and I love it too because this is kind of the antithesis of a lot of King endings. Um, we've talked before sometimes where he falters with endings. Um, and this isn't just this isn't specific to Stephen King, but I think a lot of genre storytellers in general, 
they try and have the big ending where everything's going nuts and there's ghosts everywhere. Like I mean, even The Shining, mm-hmm. to an extent, everything's just kind of going off and there's a big there's explosions at the end and all this. And um, I, I actually read uh, Gwendy's Button Box while after you guys did while I was reading this. And what I appreciate about that book and this one is that when King wants to, he can do a simple ending really well. And not that this is, I mean, it's, I don't like to say this is simple because we're debating it here. So obviously thematically it's very heavy, but if you think about just the physical events that happen in this, the main character gets to the end of the long walk. He survives. He sees a figure and starts running towards it. And I mean, you can I guess sum that up. You it's know? like I guess there's a climax, but yeah. really, it's just it's and over. I, and it's over. And you know? I, I love, I love, and he doesn't do it in all his books, but I really do love when King trusts himself to do that kind of ending because I think that can be so much more powerful than ha- than having all the crazy paranormal shit happen too. Which I like that in, in a certain sense. But I mean, you know, we we've talked about having a little bit of issue with some of the end, stuff in the ending of The Stand and some of these bigger books. I like that this is just like it's the end of the race and that's it, you know? Well, for me, this ending is... It, you just keep once again thinking about the fact that he started writing this when he was in high school and finished it when he was a freshman. So I'm assuming this ending was more or less intact. I can't imagine him changing that much yeah. after he submitted it the first time. What and if think that- about him being that young... And I think he's written better books since then, mm-hmm. but this is still one of my favorite endings that he's ever written. Yeah, I, I would say that too, and um, I mean, we'll see what we all give it rating wise. Yeah. But yeah, there, there are it does have flaws, but it is one of my absolute favorite endings. The uh, just, <laughs> I, I was just thinking, like, what if the major you know, reaching out to him? What if, what if there was like a scrapped ending where he was like, like, no, come back here. You know, we know you've been through a lot. We've got a great mental health system. We're going to give you some. Your therapy. dad's We're fine. Gonna, yeah, he's fine. Like everything's all right. <laughs> like this is like yeah, it's like come back. So anyway, they what, embraced the, the end. I think there's one last little, uh, you know, gravestone in the cemetery I'd like to read. Um, no, this is a little thing, and it, uh, this is just a, like a sentence, but it, it gave me chills when I was reading it. Because um, I think one of the spookier things that King captures is the idea of the first night, you know, the fact that the sun's going to go down and they're going to have to walk through the night. Um, and that's, you know, spooky in itself. But then once morning comes, um, I just love this little paragraph here. By four o'clock, there was a brightening band on the horizon, and Garrity felt his spirits lift. He stared back at the long tunnel of the night in actual horror and wondered how he ever could have gotten through it. And that line just really resonated with me, like that long tunnel of the night. I've been there, you know, um, especially like when you, it's like early morning and one side of the sky is bright and the other is still dark, and it genuinely feels like you're caught in this liminal space. Uh, I don't know, that line really got under my skin a little bit, just thinking about this like tunnel of darkness that you got through, but how much there is still to go. Well, it's so cinematic, and that's why I feel, hopefully, if if this is given to the right person, this could make a... Well, <sighs> really good King, King is the great, you know, King is the greatest at simple lines and just kind of writing yeah, yeah. That, just that one, it almost feels like a tagline because he, he, they talk about sunlight a lot and how it becomes like this like lifeboat for them. Yeah. And like there's one line where it's just like, thank God I can die in the daylight. Yeah. Which is like, ugh, like that's your, that's the most optimistic thing that you could think of. And, and there are two minor things I have to discuss, very short sentences, just about how gross everything really is with like how they're what, what's happening to their bodies as oh, they're walking I think for so I know long. What you're gonna say. I've got a couple quick little disgusting notes here. Does one involve um, an Italian dish? Um, I actually don't have that note written down, but I do remember that one. Yeah. Uh, one is oh my gosh, it's disgusting. Where the hell is in my nose? Like the one with the veins being like spaghetti was disgusting. I just <laughs> like, hated. I hated Olsen describing his muscles as baggy. Yeah. That yeah. would like made me feel sick. Ugh. 
I think this is. Oh, I, I, I've got it. Here and this go. is. I will say the the long walk is one of the few King books where I don't mind them talking about their bowel movements because that's a real thing. Because that was well, yeah. a natural thing that would happen. You'd we'll have get to there, Dan. Um, yeah. So the cemetery. Uh, <laughs> some more disgusting parts. Uh, Ewing is described by Baker as uh, walking in pus from broken blisters. Just the just oh the, the red, blisters, the, the alliteration disgusting. there. And then um, near the end of the book, um, one walker who's not even named. Uh, is described his feet are described as a purple patchwork of burst veins. Oh, oh, somebody walks around a lot. It's that's well, horrifying to think about. Now that we look back on the dark tunnel of this podcast, uh, there's some light in our future, and that light is in the form of a light golden brown pound cake. After all you've been taught, everyone in bad mama, everything in the sin. Come to your closet and pray. Ask to be forgiven. He's a nice boy, Mom. You like him. You really like him, Mama. This would be a light serving. Uh, <laughs> very light serving. And it, I will say that this book has, hands down, the darkest example of pound cake yeah. that Stephen King has ever written. So is it not a light golden brown, but a dark Yeah, I think this brown. one might be a little burnt. It's not a little blackberry really, jam. There's a couple of fun nuggets, but it's not necessarily... This is not yeah. going to be a fun uh, couple minutes. The, yeah, and we no. yeah, obviously pound cake is where we, we don't talk about every... Some sex scenes, like for the stand with Nadine and Flag, we put in the cemetery. But in this book, we talk about we goofy. talk about uh, absurd, yes. goofy, um, unnecessarily gross uh, uh, depictions of bodily fluids, sexual intercourse, uh, poopy, poopy, yeah. things like that. But, but our favorite words do come back. Yeah. Yes. In this oh, book. yeah. So our old friend from Salem's Lot came back uh, when our master king described a woman's breasts as Jahoobies. And uh, here's the passage. This is uh, obviously, um, you know, Garrity is, uh, Garrity is walking. Some people recognize him. Here they go. They recognized Garrity and gave him a standing ovation. It made him feel uncomfortable. One of the girls had very large breasts. Her boyfriend was watching them jiggle as she jumped up and down. Garrity decided that he was turning into a sex maniac. Look at them jahoobies, Pearson said. Dear, dear me. <laughs> um, and, and I will say really quick, even though, I mean, we're live at jahoobies because, like, what a weird word to use for them. But I think, and I think this ties to how pound cake is used in this book. Even that, um, the jahoobies part's funny, but in the in the following passages, it actually does get kind of sad because Garrity keeps thinking about that. It makes him think about Jan. And it, I feel like the pound cake is yeah. used for... Um, for altruistic purposes. Yeah, yeah but yeah. he, it's still the case of King can't describe a female without talking about yes. her boobs. Yeah. Because uh, we hear about Jan's uh, soft uh, breasts often, but also right when we meet his mother. Yes. Oh boy, here we, we go. The, the line is His mother was also tall, but too thin. Her breasts were almost non existent. Token nubs. Token nubs. Which might be the greatest 70s Doesn't, band. Like which we all 70s know rock and roll band. It's a precursor Doesn't to this literature say, four years later. I, I know he said nubs. It always sounds says, like a ZZ Top song. To, uh, we got some token nubs. <laughs> 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 Heaven go crazy for a lady with token nubs. I, <laughs> well, you going crazy. <laughs> I just got my token nubs. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, she's got nubs. <laughs> she knows they're token. I, I was I was actually re-listening to a bunch of ZZ Top the other day because I, I do like a lot of ZZ Top. They flip their guitars. And it's, it's funny. You hitchhike in, in unison. <laughs> yeah. it, it's funny because in the 70s, 
they they were like blues rock, but they they would play really complex stuff. Like you're like, oh, this has got a groove to it. And then the '80s when they're doing like legs and uh, um, tush and all that, it just became like doom, boom, doom, boom, and then they would just Lord, give me downtown. I'm just looking for some nubs. I do like I like me some stuff. Does he say? I can't remember. Does he say the word? Does he uh, say, d- doesn't he say the, fr- I know he says the phrase nubs and nubbins all the time. Doesn't he say token nubs in another book? Am I making that up? I'm sure he does. You know I, I cannot wait when we stumble upon that in 2019, like yeah. the fall of 2019. We, so we, we, need, we need to take a pound cake. We need to like make a pound cake database. <laughs> the, the, that, uh, that would be great. The, 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 I, the IMP, no wait. The, like search the, nubbins. It says like, we found three uses of nubbins. The IP, the IPDB, International Pound <laughs> IPDB. Cake Database. I mean, internet I, internet pound cake database. Yeah. I think there's a lot of disgusting like examples of pound cake in this one. A lot of dark ones, and we're gonna get to the the cream of the crop Ugh. at the end of this. Um, but I thought the way that Garrity is talking about his relationship with Jimmy and how they first saw a with naked Jams. woman, and and he goes, um, Jimmy said he had oh, Jimmy, seen his mother naked. Jimmy said he knew. Jimmy said it was hairy and cut open. Ugh, he had yeah. refused to believe Jimmy because what Jimmy said was disgusting. I would agree with you, Garrity. <laughs> well, that is, and that is how, but that is how like kids would describe. It. Yeah, I mean, there's. Uh, we don't, I won't go. I won't say it on air. But uh, yeah, I mean, there there are some terms for like a woman's anatomy like that that are tying back to that idea of of, of uh, yeah what Jimmy said and it's, it's start gross. Definition. Yeah. He to, to we don't have to go through every one of these examples because they're not really that great, but. Proud breasts uh, makes a return also, <laughs> oh, yes. which I'm pretty sure he's used that before. I think it was actually in it was either in The Shining or Salem's Lot. He does. Yeah, even in um, it's proud funny. Proud breasts. Like what what's is that, that um, Michael Ian Black joke from Stella? He goes, "I like my coffee like I like my women: strong, black, and proud." Proud. <laughs> <laughs> It, the, even in um, reading the Dead Zone right now, there and there's there, so far there isn't a ton of sex in it, but. The, yeah, the breast thing is is interesting because even when he's describing the nurse, it's like, oh, she had a gold cross chain between her breasts. Now that's not like a really gross thing to say necessarily, but because King, we he talks about that, that with every woman, he it's funny because he can't just say she was wearing a gold cross neck necklace or yeah. a gold cross hung across her chest. It's always always with the breasts. It's always with the jahubis. Yeah, mm-hmm. jahubis, clapping an eye. I mean, the to top it off for a pound cake is the death of. Gribble. And yeah, Ugh. this and this is this Wait, is, by the way, um, perfect name for this death yeah, scene, yeah. right? One and really quick, like going into this, the and this is what I was gonna say before, even though we do talk about the goofier, grosser side of King, um, I think this is an instance and we we did this with Salem's lot too. For the most part, the way I think King uses sex in the long walk is very effective and yeah, very absolutely. disturbing. And because that is something that's always on your mind when you're that age. It, it, it couple that with all the rest of the shit these guys are going literally. through. Literally, it don't touch. Yeah, and it, no, it really, it really. I will say, like, this is actually a book for, for where, for the most part, I think all the instances of sex like work really well and end up, I think, achieving the desired effect. There, there, there's not there. They aren't like, um, they aren't like speed bumps in the narrative as much as they are in, in the stand in Salem's Lot. Well, it, it goes back to the whole eighties trope, uh, the slasher film trope of like sex being this dangerous thing. And mm. if you're, you know, Gripple's death reminded me of that because it's like he indulged in the sex and he dies for it. And it's like that kind of kind of puritanical metaphor that's there. <laughs> Except this is even worse because the majority of the time in like Friday the Thirteenth or Halloween, the people are actually having sex. 
and this well, is they like, and they up. just wrapped it up. So it's like, oh, well, they had sex, and then they had a nice moment, and then they're gonna die. This is <laughs> he like, in, in you know, Gribble runs off to the side and sees these two women that are on the car, and he basically like dry hump essentially, mm-hmm. and he takes three warnings, and then he runs back to the road, and then here's the passage. Oh. So you gave them their little thrill, Barkovich said. Something for them to talk about and show and tell tomorrow. Just shut up, Gribble screamed. He dug at his crotch. It hurts. I got a cramp. Blue balls, Pearson said. That's what he's got. Gribble looked at him through the stringy bangs of black hair that had fallen over his eyes. He looked like a stunned weasel. It hurts, he muttered again. He dropped slowly to his knees, hands pressed into his lower belly, head drooping, back bowed. He was shivering and snuffling, and Garrity could see the beads of sweat on his neck. Some of them caught in the fine hairs in the nape, what Garrity's own father had always called quack fuzz. Okay. A moment later, and he was dead. Garrity turned his head to look at the girls, but they had retreated inside their MG. They were nothing but shadow shapes. Oh. I love that last line. Yeah, yeah, that is so good. It's just like they don't even care. Yeah. Like, yeah, and it's, it's um, you know, yeah, it would be one thing if it was this moment of triumph like with Scram and the Hoppy Indians where like say he started having sex with this girl or kissing her or whatever and it's this joyful moment and he's happy when he gets taken away. Yeah, but instead no. it's like, yeah, it gets blue balls. It he doesn't get to complete anything, and it physically ends up being the end. No. That's and it's not like it's not like Garrity who gets to that's get what off I'm thinking about his he, one part. He, and or Garrity ejaculates yeah. without even touching himself. He just wraps his shirt around it or his oh, jacket. God, yeah. yeah, that's so that's interesting too. Interesting, I guess it is. Yeah. Uh, there's one other bit of uh, pound cake that, and I guess I, I guess we can fold this into it. Is um, you know so we've talked about a night shift and uh, a couple other Stephen King books. The way that um, it gets a little uncomfortable, or in even the stand, it gets a little uncomfortable sometimes in the way early King books sort of um, ex- like just push the race button a little too hard. Like mm-hmm. there will be one black character and they become defined by their blackness in a lot of ways. And I feel like Ewing is the only black character that we meet or yeah. that is described as such. And the thing is, like, could any of these characters be black? Totally. But... Yeah. It's just the fact that Ewing is aggressive. Like, there's so much description of how dark he is. Like, they say he's so he's so black. He's he he looks blue or something. Yeah, they said. And yeah. it's like, and then um, and then like later, there's a, a bit where um, Garrity starts singing like in his head. Or no, they they hear there's somebody playing a harmonica, and it sounded a little like old black Joe. Garrity thought, and then they start sing, he starts singing the lyrics, and it's all super racist. Mm-hmm. And he acknowledges that it's racist, but it's like it's just kind of weird. Um, uh, let me see here. Yeah, it's just like he just riffs on it for so long. Like he goes, uh, "If only they could have lived to see the long walk." Garrity thought they could have collaborated on the world's first morbid musical, "Masses on the De Cold Cold Road" or "The Telltale Stride," because he's talking about Poe too. But it's just like it feels a little bit unnecessary and um, just kind of gross. Like it, like mm-hmm. it does when he, you know, in trucks or in the stand and stuff like that. There's just this sort of fetish this fetishization and um, uh, exploitation of, you know, this one black character who dies so early. Yeah, he totally. Was dumb enough to wear Converse or whatever. Wait, P, were they PK train? Where were they? Were the P- the? PF Flyers. PF, PF Flyers. Flyers, yeah. Let's look this up. Any, any more Which slices? Are the same shoes, I believe, that uh, our boy uh, from the Sandlot wears to outrun uh, the Beast, I think. Oh, Benny. Well, because pr- it, it probably Seven does seem like... It, it probably is... Uh, it's good. It's a good movie. Seven out of ten, my yeah. like yeah. saying it's better than the wrestler. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's what it sets out. To, sorry, let's let me um, take over here. I think it accomplishes <laughs> okay, what it major. sets out to do more than uh, the wrestler. And I mean, right. let me put my aviator sunglasses on because my word is Bond and my word is final. 
<laughs> if your word is final, then I would be a miserable son of a bitch because the wrestler is a nine out of ten. Ooh, not, I thought you give that a ten out of ten. I was gonna give it a ten out of ten. But yeah, I, I, I've come around. I've, no, no, no. I've infiltrated your mind. <laughs> this would be a I'm six out of ten in two weeks. No, I'm saying nine out of ten for those that aren't obsessively interested in the movie. Like, uh, you know, I, 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 I'll give it that nine mm-hmm. out of ten. That's the lowest I go. For context on this argument, listeners, please see our latest Meeple <laughs> tweets episode. Um, so have we have we polished off this 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 plate of pound cake? Small, s- small serving, yeah. yeah small small serving. Serving. I had a big dinner, so I feel like this was enough. But it was also dessert. a satisfying serving, as we say. Uh, 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 King uses pound cake really well in this book. It's, you know, it's about teenagers, and it's about um, you know all those things that teenagers deal with. And so I think I, that, frustration. I'm gonna I'm just gonna give a warning to listeners who who do like pound cake. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't think we have another huge huge i don't think we have another huge platter of pound cake for quite a while to be honest i think there's a little Cujo, bit in the, a little in the dead zone yeah a little bit but not not there. a lot we, we you don't have sam's lot or the stand level of pound cake no, Lord not, no. well there is a section <laughs> hey look there's no ben mirrors in cujo not know? until well Cu, no cujo is, has got some very there's specific some oh there's cake. a little fair yeah well we'll talk yeah. about that well about, there's that uh, section month. in cujo where like the dog jumps on the hood of the car and then you hear the inner monologue of the dog and it's just like oh man that mom's got some fine token ups well that takes us to uh the place where all king's books uh uh meet and that's king's dominion there's another world out there i know there is So uh, this is the section where we like to talk about where in King's work, uh, if there's any references to other bits of King's work or the Dark Tower lore, are we on a beam right now? Um, is Randall Flagg showing up? Maybe, who knows? Mike, do you have any uh, uh, King's Dominion tidbits to share? Well, according to the complete Stephen King universe, uh, this is what they write. Hmm. Um Oh shit! I just lost it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess if you want to look for it, I've got yeah, I got some real yeah. quick ones here. Yeah. Okay, well then, let my me brother. Well, my, we can keep going. I guess my my brother Mac was not is not here today. Loser Mac is not here, and he likes to give up these real tenuous uh, conspiracy theories. Conspiracy yeah. theories. Room two thirty seven esque ones. So let me. I'll knock these off while Mike looks for the more um, logical ones. Maybe. Uh, chapter one. Olson slung his belt low on his li- on his hips like a gunslinger. Oh dear. Huh? Uh, okay. Uh, chapter two. A juniper lane is mentioned. Uh, juniper Hills location, perhaps. <laughs> um, chapter three. It was oh, only boy. nineteen miles yeah. to Caribou. I saw. Yeah, uh, there you go. Uh, chapter three. Full dark had come by six thirty. Uh, no stars. Full dark. No stars. Chapter sixteen. Miss Petrie is an old uh, teacher of Garrity's. Uh, ah, Mark Petrie, maybe. Uh, maybe a grandma. And of course, I think Randall appreciate this one. Chapter seventeen. There's a walker named Radigan, the uh, Rat Man, baby. Boy. The Rat Man. <laughs> will give you this time. <laughs> Raddy Elkin. Raddy. Raddy Elwin. And that's. Oh, Mike, have you found? Um, what we're looking for here for the old long walk. Well, it, it it seems that like it could be a Bachman universe. Not maybe not in the Stephen King universe, but it could be that all these books are tied together mm-hmm. in a certain way because the Running Man and um, the Long Walk have jarring similarities. The uh, game show, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean that that whole. I mean thematically, it's very different, but there's still well, not that much actually. I mean, it's very similar in in retrospect, and even Rage to a certain degree. If you think about how society is depicted in that, it's this very 
it's not dystopian. It's in not rage, nihilistic, but it's very. It, yeah. it is very nihilistic, and you could assume that rage maybe happened, maybe did actually happen in this universe. I mean, they never really say otherwise. Maybe rage. that's the major as a kid. Yeah, right. Oh <laughs> yeah. Charlie God. Decker is yeah. the major. He gets out of out of. Uh, oh, you the, know what though? Maybe Charlie Decker is the major because the way that uh, Charlie Decker's father is written in the rage is very kind of. I don't know. Wait, you mean, you mean I, I? I don't mean that. Like <laughs> this is literally the case. I'm not trying to pose as a conspiracy theory, but hey, who yeah, knows? That's yeah. all I'm saying. Who knows? Yeah. And then there is obviously the uh, thought that maybe the dark man that yeah. he sees at the end is a yeah. flag. I remember being a kid and thinking that. I mean, the th- the thing is, and and that is a thought that entered my mind. And I said this earlier. I. As much as I love Randall Flagg, sometimes I do get kind of, all right, was he just going to be any mysterious dark figures, <laughs> always Flagg? Um, and it's, uh, not that that's not cool, but in, in a certain way, it's like, ah, am, am I... Am I have I just read too much King? You know, yeah. maybe it's not. I, I, I don't. I don't think it is. I don't. Think I think. I don't. I think, I think it's, it's more. And I think it's more interesting. I think it's fun if, to talk about, though. I think it's way more interesting if the dark figure at the end is no one. If it's 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 all in his head kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. There what, is. Yeah. There is some other weird things. Like, does anyone remember who Freaky D'Alessio is? Yes, and that haunts um, Garrity throughout the book. Yeah, but wh- who is he's it a kid from Garrity's. I guess I, I a just real young remember, kid. I guess. He's the kid who's got the cross-eyed because I think he got hit. Remember, he was playing baseball. He got hit in the head with the baseball, and he gets hit by that car. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got some notes on him. Yeah. But, um, did did that lead into something that you had, Mike? Or? No, it's just it was this recurring thing, and I and I must have just glanced, you know, glossed over that when it was originally. The, he also the other, the other big thing was people made fun of him all the time. I think he was one of those people that made fun of him all the time. Mm. I think Maybe Henry look, Bowers made fun of him. Hey, look at that. Maybe a bell check. Well, and there but, there is a lot, obviously, too. With like, you know, they're going pat. They talk about Lewiston, Maine, which is in a lot of other books. I mean, I mean, the fact that that's such a such a cop out of a of a of a King's Dominion section, but. Um, yeah. You know, we are going past a lot of the towns that he does mention. Uh, I think Randall brought this up before we started. Um, yeah, there's Kali Parker and there's Kali and Tragin and Desperation. But I've noticed that King does. I don't even know if I'd put that in King's Dominion. I, I feel like the really colorful names that King has are very specific to the main Canadian region because a lot of them are French. Like yeah. Duchamp, the name Duchamp shows up a lot. Um, even Teddy Wyzak, you know, I mean, that's not French, but like I think I, th- I feel like he just takes names that yeah, I think he takes names that he likes. So Kali, I mean, I, I think, think it's he just met cool. a, I think he knew a mean boy named Kali at one point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, <laughs> that's he, a good theory. He does. Uh, he references Cordwood again. Ah. He does. He does like, always take a picture of that one point or something. I feel and, like, and, and then with oh yeah, you go. Well, back. I feel like King. I, feel, I, I I wonder if King like during as one of his summer jobs or something had like I don't know had to remove cordwood <laughs> or something because he 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 brings up cordwood in like four books so far. We're not we're only in the first decade of his career. But so. the last the last thing I want to say about Freaky this really has nothing to do with, with King's Dominion. I think this just is an example of you know you kind of look back on your childhood as an adult and you think about maybe if you mistreated a, another kid. Um, like Steve Buscemi and like, uh, Billy Madison. Yeah, but now I'm, I'm putting lipstick on in my couch now. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think this is nice. an example of how uh, during this long walk, their childhood and teenage years are so accelerated where now they are starting to look back on their past because at one point he sees Freaky up ahead on the road oh. as a vision. Um, so I think it's just it's an example of something that haunts him. What's also haunting is uh, we get a reference to what's called Judgment Trump. It's in, I did it's in, see that. Yeah, that was interesting. It's kind of eerie. Yeah. But it's only page. Isn't, isn't the Trump in caps too? It is. That's, that's what's really that's what's strange. weird. Yeah. Um, so. Well, I think that wraps it up for King's Dominion. Yeah. I think it's lot. time to share our final thoughts on this book. Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. <laughs> okay, I'll be right there. You said that a half hour ago. 
Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. Um, Justin, you want to kick us off? I'll, I'll go last, actually. Okay. If you don't mind. Man, Dan. All right. I, I feel like my bright red... <laughs> Anyway, I can't. I could never fucking say that That's without laughing. Funny. White, white, pointy, white, penguin. Uh-huh. Um, I, I feel like this is gonna sound like a lower rating than how much I like the book, but I'm trying to weigh it against the other books where that I've that we've gone through. I'm gonna give it three and a half. Bright red, uh, Pennywise clown noses. I was almost gonna do four, but I, I still think there is a lot of there are a lot of young mistakes in the book. Like mm-hmm. I said, but with the exposition, um, and um, but at the same time. I love the ending. I love the characters. I think it goes to some truly disturbing places. I love that it's one of the OG young adult novels, but at, at the same time, so different from any other young adult novel that comes along that has come along since. And I actually think for being such a simple concept and structure, as we've talked about uh, at length today, it gets at so many complex themes like that. And that that was such a surprise for me when going back into this book. But I guess I look at it like you know I gave The Shining three and a half. Uh, noses which I stand by and I'm like am I gonna say it's better than The Shining I don't I don't quite think so but I but there are elements of it that I do like a lot better than some of his classic books um so my three and a half is still a good rating right um, that's a seven out of ten that's a good yeah so that's three three and a half for me um and and the the flaws by no means ruin the book by no means ruin the book for me um they are they're just some like stylistic choices that I think are just indicative of him being young I mean it's his first book and it's better than anything I've ever written I'm twice his age at this point so we we love you, Master King. I would agree with that rating. Three and a half for me. I think this is uh, t- touching upon and kind of drawing upon what you just said. I feel this is definitely an early book. You can read it um, as as if he was very young when he wrote this. And but at, having said that, I think it speaks to his power of a writer. And you know when you look at what his influences were, you know like there's a lot of Orwellian here, mm-hmm. um, Orwellian imagery. There's a lot of Shirley Jackson, which is a huge influence on him. Um, and if you read Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, this just seems like he kind of subverted that a little bit and yeah. did his own take on it. Um, you know, with even with that in mind, though, it, it, it's such an upgrade and from where he was with Rage, and, oh, man, and just like, shows day. just yeah. just shows just how far he had come at that point and you know the the fact that he's able to take on all the stuff that was around him at that point in terms of just what was going on with the Vietnam War the peace movement and um just the the fragility of America and use that to kind of create a really soluble genre uh novel and then also weld it with more kind of literary notions of just existence and and identity and and friendship and and just the the just so much to take out of it it's just there's there's a lot of complexities to this novel that are really 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 um uh they they, they foreshadow to, to keep that recurring theme just where he is going to go mm-hmm. and and you know it's I, I think it's very important when you read this book to know that this didn't technically come after the stand <laughs> yeah yeah you know like you know you read the stand you're like holy shit this is a very professional writer to be able to accomplish this feat and then to go to the long walk i think it's 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 unfair to like assume that he was doing that right afterwards it's not um so when you think about it in the context of where it was it's an even more astounding book um so but i still having said that at three and a half I'm going to give it four bright red Pennywise Whoa. clown noses. I love this book. Uh, I think that it, for what it sets out to do, um, is it his most ambitious book or, you know, no, but it's to me, 
um, such a beautiful, authentic, honest depiction of um, young teenagers grasping with mortality. And that it really resonates with me and it genuinely reminds me of what it was like to be a 16-year-old boy, um, which is a feeling I miss. <laughs> <laughs> and um every day every day away. i know yeah you just go home to jen jen i want to be a 16 year old <laughs> boy again <laughs> um so yeah i mean I, I i love the characters um the the pulpy side of me loves sort of the the weight of death that hangs over it and sort of some of the scenes of of brutality uh because you know i'm not gonna lie we're king fans we get a kick out of that kind of stuff sometimes do, do you guys think we don't have to stand this too long because i know we're at the end if it, I, I think there's a specific reason why he did make it um, 16-year-old boys and not 16-year-old boys and girls, especially because we were talking about the draft in Vietnam and all that. Okay. Just because like diversity, whatever else is a thing. Do you think the book would have been a lot different had he done boys and girls? Like, oh, do you totally. think that would have affected the sexual dynamic? It would have changed um, everything. Yeah, it was, but, yeah. yeah, my whole thing would go yeah. into was thinking about the Vietnam thing and how exactly, women yeah. were not drafted. That, I think that's exactly even says a, yeah, the, no, even totally. in, in the Why I Became Bach when he talks about how a lot of there's a lot of obvious te- subtext to this and that has to that's no that that's that. that's exactly what i would think too because i do wonder if they did make a movie out of it today i wonder if they would keep it boys and i guess it depends on what you're going after because obviously a draft wouldn't be like a thing you would examine now yeah. but i feel like if you, you were trying to reflect the times and i think there would be men and women yeah you know? the but it, for yeah. me though this is just so much about young masculinity and no i think so too yeah um you know what it's like to to feel like you're young and invincible and it's about the bond be- bonds between men and boys no, I th- that I, form in, in situations like this. I so. think so too. See, I, I'd be curious if they do ever get around adapting it. Like what would they set it in the, in the seventies and, yeah. and do, or does this, it does take place in the seventies, right? This, it's, it's, it's updated for the 70s because they talk about John gotcha. Travolta at one point. Um, so yeah, I always, I, w- I wonder what route they would go. I wonder if they would stick to that, um, the Vietnam connection and also use it as, like you said, to just explore I mean, masculinity or if they would do something yeah, else. I'm, it, yeah. It's just like, I'm all about diversity and representation, yeah. but uh, not when it um, is there to, not when the story itself is about young boys. For sure, yeah. Like, I'd say, yeah, yeah like, like uh, I'd love to see people of different races uh, thrown in there. I think that would give it an, an even yeah. stronger dynamic. We only get a little bit of it in the book, but um, you know, but it, it's a story about boys, and that's what I like. Sorry, I just keep that the sixteen-year-old boy, thing. little boys. <laughs> I want to be a boy. Um, so yeah. yeah, I give it a, a a hearty four. Bright red Pennywise clown noses. Justin, I um, finished this about a week ago, so I I didn't want to get too hyperbolic. I wanted to give us some time. I know. Yeah. I, I, I can um, predict what you're going to say. Yeah. Hey, I oh wanted to give us some time. And I read it, you know, I read it three or four years ago. I loved it three or four years ago. But what I love about this podcast and how smart we all are now. But I love, <laughs> I love, we are all kind of approach. I mean, we are definitely approaching these books from a much more scholarly angle. And, you know, we're thinking about these books in a different way when we're reflecting upon every word and how we want to talk about it and what we want to break down, what we love and what we don't like. And, um, I, believe this is a, a minor masterpiece and i think it's in terms of genre fiction i think it's an incredible work coming from a 20 year old at the time um i i look at the flaws of the book and they're not to me as noticeable as the flaws you can find in something and i love carrie salem's lot Sh- shining and the stand and i hate rage so rage keep rage out of this rage is, is awful yeah. maybe his worst book but 
for what we we talk about this all the time. For what this book sets out to do, I think it's quite exceptional. He would write better novels going forward, but I'm going to say I give this four and a half out of five. Oh, Red, I, thought, I thought you were going the whole. No, five. no, no. I won't do that. Five, I, I, th- I mean, five noser. In terms of <laughs> five being, <laughs> five, okay, it's a five noser. No, is that you uh-huh. said? You said that a while ago, right? I think I, I stole remember. that. I think I, I stole that from you. Five noser. Oh, five noser. Yeah. But I give it four and a half. Red oh, uh, Pennywise clown noses. At this point, um, this is my the favorite my favorite King novel I've read. As in through the first six books. Could could we really really quick each just boom 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 say what our favorite book of the ones we've read so far, regardless of whether you're on the episode or not? I'm just curious to see. So yours is Long Walk. Mine so, is the Long Walk. At this mine point. would be Salem's Lot. Mine's Salem's Lot also. Stand. Stand. Interesting. Cool. Yeah. Uh, what uh, average wise? What's our nose average? Actually, I don't remember if I. I think it was The Shining. Maybe. Maybe it would be The Shining. Yeah, I yeah. think you liked The Shining a little bit better. Yeah, because I. Yeah, because yeah. you, 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 you said sounds a lot didn't scare you necessarily. Yeah, that, no, it, it would definitely. This be the gets shining. a uh, overall between the four of us a three point eight seven. So wait, we go to round up to four then, right? I think. Yeah, we round up to four. Yeah, I'm keeping a rank. Are you guys keeping a ranking list for yourself? I you know what's funny? I haven't started to do that yet because, uh, to me. It's hard, it's honestly hard to really rank these because mm-hmm. to, to King's credit, they're so different. They are, yeah. Just in terms of the structure, the theme, and you know everything we break down these episodes. There are things late, there are, there are books later on um, where he'd be repeating some devices, but yeah, for the most, you know what though? By the time we get to Firestarter, between Carrie, The Shining, The Dead Zone, and Firestarter, that's like four of his early books already that have people with some kind of mental powers in them, and that's to say nothing of his short stories. Yeah. But even with those, I don't ass- I don't like. I don't consider any of those books in the same vein. Like they're no. all very and different. And even though they, yeah. even though some of those technically do take place in the same universe, yeah. I don't. It's hard for me to say because even though Cujo and Dead Zone have to take place in Castle Rock, yeah, they're totally different types the, of storytelling I kind or of hate, totally different types of plots. I kind know? of hate. I mean, I know it's, I know it's just a joke and it's a stupid show anyway. But you know, in the Family Guy where they do the Stephen King thing, like, oh, okay, well, there's this, uh, there's this lamp and it gets possessed. It, like that, the idea of that. Oh, all he does is he takes like. Oh, this is the th- this is the book where I have this thing that's scary, and maybe he does that to an extent. But I still think he writes about everything so differently. And like that, I think the what you said makes total sense about the ranking. Like all these books so far, I mean that yeah, they're very different stylistically. Um, I think it's funny that yeah. Seth MacFarlane, who's a hack, would actually try to criticize somebody <laughs> for being a hack. Too, you think so. it's bad? Man. I think that was right after Cell came out. Was when that they made that. Yeah, joke. like oh, cell phones are bad now. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah, well no, the problem, stupid. you know, the sad thing is, is that. You know, Cell is just such a, an exception to everything else that's come after the accident. If you really look back at all his other books, he's they're had not, a good run. They're man. not. You can't just drill them down to like an object or something like that. Like all those post two thousand books aren't just like. You can't be like, oh, um, this is about a a car, or this is about you know yeah, a, a dog, or you know, or it's like that. No, that's the, the post two thousand books are far more complex. The, the stigma is you know? undeserved. And and, and you, you guys touched on this in the Neville Tweets episode, but his. You know, I, I guess if you looked at like a week stretch, maybe he would say in the early '90s, wherever he had he had a couple duds. But there's, there, if I was looking at like all of his books in order the other day, there is not more than maybe a two book stretch, and even that I don't hate them at all. But there's not more than a two book stretch where he doesn't have like a maybe I'm being hyperbolic now, but like a, a masterpiece. Like I, f- I feel like he. It's not like he's like, man, that decade sucked for him. He just really, and especially since the accident, I've really liked a lot of his mm-hmm. books. I mean, you said eleven twenty two. I agree. That's, that's, my, that's his best book. I think. Yeah, and so it's I don't know. It's it's really cool to just five examine that. It's a five, that that is a five, five noser. Spoiler alert. So oh man. Anyway, but yeah. Um. So yeah, ranking. Uh, I'm gonna keep ranking, but maybe it is a fool's errand. Don't worry, mom. I know all about cannibalism. 
I saw it on TV. See? It's okay. You saw it on the television. This is usually where we would talk about the film or comic book or other adaptations, but there is no film adaptation of The Long Walk. Uh, there was actually, a, and I was reading earlier, a piece from the uh, the uh, uh, the late but missed um, the Dissolve website, film website. Uh, Tasha Robinson over there wrote a piece about how The Long Walk really should be adapted because mm-hmm. and what... Uh, what power it could have in modern, you know, sort of in uh, modern, in our modern times, but also how easy it would be to film and what a great acting showcase it could be and, uh, you know, various things like that. It would be a directing showcase also. Yeah. Because once again, totally. it's like what King manages to, to get around is here's the plot. It's 100 guys walking down a road. And, and to make, and to make um, for me, a really compelling um, novel out of that. And now the challenge is as a director... What angles can I take here? What, what, what cuts would I make here? Would I incorporate flashbacks with people like looking off to the right and like seeing their past? I have, I have visions of my, my, my wannabe filmmaker head about how you would film this thing. And I like, Blake, was it you that said Jeremy Solnier could do an amazing adaptation? Oh, yeah. Do you want absolutely. to talk about that? Because I agree with you. Well, I, I think he would do, he would capture just the stakes because mm-hmm. that's like, you know, you need that to really kind of get the feel for this story you need to know what's at hand and he's going to do that perfectly i mean both of his you know blue run and also the green room like they they both have this this dread of the situation at hand you're like there you are like the you're just in so much trouble at every moment and and i think that he would do great at that and he also is great at creating characters i mean mm-hmm. and subtly creating characters and like you know that's such that's what's awesome about this book is that the the subtle makings of, of everyone or the subtle dressings of every character are just phenomenal and I feel he would do a great job at that because those characters oh, but, sorry. but but to go with your saying because this is like a very you know bottled story where it's just on the road the whole time and that was kind of my issue with it is that for me it was uh, there were portions where I was getting it was the repetition was starting to drag on me where it was just like how many how many times am I going to read about the description of like somebody's legs I get that it's important but you know, and King really loves using repetition a lot of the times, and it, and it, and it for the most part it works really well. But there were portions, I'm, I have to admit, that I was just like, like, come on, let's you know, I was doing the rolling uh, yeah. finger twirling, like let's get this going. Um, and so I, I would be interested to see how a director would be able to handle that, and I think Saulnier could do that perfectly. I think because the thing is, we we noticed in the book where uh, McReese and Garrity are walking, and they're they're still used to the the gunshot, the loud bang of the gunshot, yeah. but. It's when firecrackers go off later on, where they kind of really react. Mm-hmm. Like that's a new loud noise. What's that noise? Yeah. But I feel like as a filmmaker, you've got to make it so every time you hear a gunshot, as an audience member, you're still and feeling he that tension. That and I think he could absolutely do that. Yeah, <laughs> like that. Oh man. Three, he al- he also um, he also my favorite thing about him as a director, uh, just from those those two movies, is how he depicts violence. I mean, he doesn't. He doesn't glorify it. He doesn't make it that's a cool. Great and he use of the word. Yeah. It's thrilling. I mean, Blue Ruin, Blue Ruin, and Green Room are both very thrilling movies. But the violence is clumsy because these are just real people who don't really know how to do it. I mean, the whole, I mean, the whole violent or the whole aesthetic behind the violence is like, okay, well, if if some guy who didn't know what he was doing got an arrow in his leg, like what would that actually be like? It you know reminds I mean? me of early Tarantino when yeah. before he started fetishizing it um, with Kill Bill. It was just the violence of it. It just happened. Like, yeah, you're like holy fuck. And I, like, and I and I think Long Walk needs that because the violence it's it, it's clumsy. I mean that that scene where um where Olsen is trying to like put his guts back in and all that yeah. that doesn't need to be this um 
slick, you know, grainy, grainily shot thing. It just seems to be a, a quick still camera. Almost, yeah. yeah, and so I think he'd be perfect for that. Yeah, I um, well, uh, Frank Darabont, at least up until a few years ago, uh, still owned the rights um, to the Long Walk and said, in due time like I did with the mist or whatever. Like he, had I would the love to, rights for to talk to him. I feel like he would talk to us about, if we, we, if we, if we, if we, if we reach out. out, Oh, you said he yeah. couldn't. Well, he hasn't gotten back to them. Yeah. Frank, where like, are you? If, you? if the angle was to talk about the long walk, as opposed to like everything else, he's probably talked about I tried, no. ad nauseum, but, uh, Darabont, yeah. his, yeah, he, he said, <laughs> no, 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 no. I just can't. No, no, he's 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 he said that his approach would be documentary style. Um, and handheld cameras and things like that. And I think that's kind of a really neat... D- does he, when he said documentary style, did he mean like someone shooting documentary or just, just handheld cameras? I think just handheld cameras and like probably walking along with the people. Uh, I can see that. Up close. Yeah. There's a bunch of different ways because, you know, that's how he did The Mist. And he said that he decided to do The Mist that way because of what he did with when he would direct a lot of episodes of The Shield. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, and he used a lot of the crew from The Shield, which is very handheld. Yeah. And The Mist that was, And that was before Friday Night Lights because Friday Night Lights gets a lot of credit for that. But there was a lot of handheld yeah. walking around the set um, well, in The Shield. Well, I hope if Darabont does do this, he's going to bring all his regulars. So we get like Toby Jones as Mc, Thomas Mc, Jane is the major. <laughs> um, to- yeah, Thomas Jane is the major. You'll get that old guy. That, that played Dale Toby Jones as McFreeze yeah, is that what you said McFreeze <laughs> and then uh, you know for, for Garrity you get the uh, hey you the get Lori Holden Lori Holden, Holden as, as uh, Stebbins as Stebbins yeah, yeah. Bill Sadler. He, he, he just do, he just as, doesn't. Uh, he just yeah. doesn't do the age thing at all. He's like, no. yeah, it's just a walk for everyone. It's like, yeah, 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 everybody gets drafted. He's like, it's like the movie Rat Race. You know, uh, you just get like <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of people. There. Yeah. Wait, no. I heard Rat Race. You mean? Uh, oh, I meant Rat the Race. Rat Man. Oh the man. Rat. God, yeah. Too bad um, the the real Rat Man isn't alive to star in the Rat Race re- re- remake. Uh-huh. <laughs> Rest in peace. Um, so yeah, that's our thoughts, uh, and yeah, so we would love to hear what you guys think about the long walk. Did you get a chance to reread it? Um, if not, get on that and get on our Facebook and let us know what you thought. Also, make sure you go to Goodreads and find our group page. It's just under the Losers Club, um, Consequence of Sound podcast. If you look down, you'll see our always tentative, uh, subject to change schedule yeah. of what's coming up, and we've got. Uh, coming up, we've got the Dead Zone. Yep, and then we've got Roadwork, and I yep. think we've got um, Firestar. Firestar. Was Dance Macabre before that? I can't remember. Yeah, you know what you should do? Check out the Goodreads page, everybody, <laughs> and uh, you'll see what's coming up next. But definitely go to the Goodreads, Zone, join yeah. our club, and we plan on doing some more things with that page. And start reading and the, the Dead future. Zone, yeah. and stay tuned next week for another episode of Needful Tweets. And um, in the meantime, long days and uh, and some pleasant nights. <laughs> Consequence Podcast Network.